Chapter 31 Lex Avery knows how to hold a grudge. Sometimes I think she wears this unfortunate trait as a badge of honor because it gives her the upper hand, especially during an argument. I keep telling myself that one day it'll come in handy for her. Until then, her world-class grudge holding is a gigantic pain in my ass, which is why I cringe at the sound of her shouting my name. I pretend I don't hear her. Dad! Working on getting sponsors so your Nazi of a mother will stop riding my ass. In the studio. What the hell is that noise? I blow it off. Probably the neighbor's kids. They're always outside. Always getting into some kind of mischief. Ellis can't stand it, but I think more kids should spend time outdoors. It's after dark, though. Weird. I've fallen behind in scheduling guests for what Ellis would call my failed podcast. Turns out, getting people to reply to interview requests between Thanksgiving and Christmas is harder than I thought. As much as I want to spam request every PR firm with an invitation, please join me so my wife won't condemn me to a life of pushing pencils at a 9 to 5. I can't. We need to talk, shouts Avery from down the hall. Sorry, I reply. Gotta try and nail down these guests or your dad's podcast will cease to exist. Her sneakers squeak against the floor. The sound gets louder with each step, and I'm definitely not getting anything done tonight. Is it really a podcast if you can't sell enough ads to pay some bills around here? She sounds more like her mom with every passing day, unfortunately. I'll take that as a compliment, I say. That was definitely not a compliment. Not that I'm some sort of expert at having an affair, but my guess is the best way to handle a suspicious daughter is to downplay any and all suspicions and play dumb. Listen, I say, rolling my office chair back so I can see her. It was wrong of me to invite Jack to dinner and I apologize. Piper's laughter echoes from the other room and Rudy barks with approval. Me too, replies Avery. I'm sorry. You too? Yeah, I should have never accused you of having a mistress. Oh my God, yes! I clear my throat the way a father does when listening to his daughter spill her heart out. I never see you and mom, and when you are home, the two of you either ignore one another or argue. She has no clue about Natasha. Yes. That's on me, Avery. No, Dad. You both have to work to do it because at the end of the day, Piper will suffer the most. Piper's feet scuttle and squeak outside the studio, and I hear a familiar voice. Faint, but familiar. You're a thousand percent correct, I say, raising my neck to see who's in the hallway. Avery blocks my view. She smiles a half-devious grin and says, We can put all this behind for now. For now. But later, more drama. She really is Ellis 2.0. Okay, I answer, and I still can't see past her. The familiar laugh ping-pongs through the hallway with pipers. I brought someone home. Figured we can try this again? Try what again? Avery steps out of my studio, and sometimes I think my gift of teasing and storytelling is rubbed off on her. I hope she brought Jack. It'd make things so much easier. We can watch a Christmas movie with Piper, and I can show him how to edit on Pro Tools. He always knows the right questions to ask, and he has the right answers to my questions. 
It can be the reboot of their relationship, which means Beckett is out of the picture and he can just be my stepson. And Natasha and I can finally focus on our future together and Alice can finally marry her business. Jack can be the right-hand man to my podcast empire and he'll have a pod of his own. People will love us as we battle it out for the number one spot on the Apple podcast chart. We'll have competitions every month and Natasha and Avery will roll their eyes when I beat them and brag about it. They'll shower him with praise when he beats me and Piper will learn everything about our podcast empire through osmosis because that's what kids do. But that's out of the picture because the familiar laugh doesn't belong to Jack. Standing next to Avery is the biggest roadblock in my life. The roadblock that always seems to show up at the wrong time. Piper's laughter stops. She bursts into the studio and hops onto my lap. I think she broke another rib. I withhold a grunt as she tells me she loves Avery's new friend, Beckett. Chapter 32 Beckett Lex, with his white eyes and pulsating Adam's apple, he launches Piper into the air and then places her on her feet. The after-effects of his ass-kicking have started to wane and it's high time for another one. As impressive as his podcast sounds... His home studio is impossibly unimpressive. Now I know why they don't want you to see where the proverbial sausage is made. Stacks of envelopes lay waste on top of his speakers with yellow circles in the middle. The screensaver on his computer is the same picture from Ellis's office. Ha. Loser. Excuse the mess, he says, shifting his eyes from me to Avery, then from Avery to Piper and from Piper to me. I've seen worse. I say, and I have. I am what adults would call self-aware. You should see my room. Avery nudges me with her elbow, then she pats Piper on her shoulder. Take Rudy to play in your room. I'll be there in a second. Lex stands up and peers behind me and Avery, as if he's expecting someone else to be with us. Just the two of you? Sorry, asshole. Just the two of us. Sorry, Dad. No Jack. He had to go home and study says Avery. Speaking of studying, says the ass face, looking at his watch as he's trying to get rid of me. How's the semester going? You need me to call? No, Dad. I don't need you to call your friend, snaps Avery, using air quotes when she says, friend. He bobs his head and stares at the ceiling and he better not be thinking of my mom. Before he says another word, Avery says, he lands one interview with a professor at U of H and all of a sudden he thinks he owns the place. And she laughs a condescending laugh. I admire the feistiness. So, says Lex, knocking on his desk. This is where I record the podcast. Wow, I say, parting my lips for an extra mesmerized effect, even though this space and this situation bore me. He and Avery watch me scanning the studio. The walls are lined with old pictures of him with celebrities from back in the day. The Black Eyed Peas, Lenny Kravitz, and Jessica Simpson. His room is accessorized the same way a 30-year-old wears his high school letterman jacket. None of the guests featured on his podcast are on his wall, but a stack of autographed novels by people I've never heard of, they pile high next to stacks of junk mail on his desk. All these pictures are from a long time ago, says Captain Obvious. Hell, I bet you can't even name a Jessica Simpson song. Nothing Google can't help me with. Google's not much older than you, he says. Avery rolls her eyes. 
Blah, blah, blah. Google was born in 1996, not long after you and mom graduated high school. So, I say, nodding my head toward his mic. I've never seen one of these before. My baby, he says. Literally, says Avery, crossing her arms. Lex points us to the couch in his disaster of a studio. He treats his mic like a delicate newborn and his workspace like a dumpster. Never mind these boxes, he says. Slide them over. I think there are books in there. Who knows? Anyway, back to his baby, says Avery. Piper's obsessed with opening mail, so I let her open one of Dad's boxes. I had no idea he was expecting this thing. A Sennheiser MKH-8060, he interjects. Whatever, says Avery. Piper opens the box, unwraps it, and starts using it as a pretend lightsaber. She gives off Padawan vibes, I say. Lex grumbles. She's waving it around the house with Rudy nipping at her ankles, and just as she points it at me, she trips on one of Dad's boxes. Organized chaos, Lex says. I like organized chaos, I say. It's about the only thing Lex and I have in common. Besides seeing Ellis naked, of course. Avery grins and continues. Just as she trips, it launches into the air and Dad swoops it into his hands before it can crash to the floor. The slamming of a door interrupts us. The pitter-patter of Piper's feet pound from the hallway and into the studio. Mama's home! No. No. Lex and I exchange glances, and I don't know who's more fucked. It's about time. She's hardly ever home before nine, says Avery. She nudges my arm. You okay? Yeah. No. Good. You're about to meet my mom. Lex's face turns eggshell white as he excuses himself to go to the bathroom. I refuse to meet Avery's mom, a.k.a. the woman I'm using to get back at Lex. This is my web of chaos and I weave it. I own it. I own Lex and I decide when to award Lex his stupid prize for playing the stupid game of fucking with the wrong family. Think, Beckett. Think. Hello, Earth to Beckett, whispers Avery, leaning his shoulder to my side. Sorry, I stammer. I fidget with my pockets to give off the impression that I just remembered something. I was supposed to go to the store for my mom and I just remembered. Good thing most of them close at midnight. A familiar voice rings through the house. Why is Piper watching Criminal Minds? Avery uses my thigh to get up from the couch. Turning my way, she says, Sorry, be right back. I nod and give her a thumbs up because what else does someone in my position do? Avery disappears into the hallway. The sound of her shoes fades away as she pleads with Ellis. Piper shouts something about blood and Lex's voice pops in with some sort of rambling. Nothing like a good old-fashioned family squabble to buy me some time. Time to ditch this hellhole and figure out my next move. The three-way bitching and moaning over Piper's access to blood and gore makes me jealous. Jealous that I'd never get into a spat with two parents over a little sister's viewing of a graphic TV series. Jealous that I'd never have a date waiting anxiously to meet one of my parents. The babble continues and at this point I've got to wonder whether or not they're overthinking. It could be worse for a school-aged kid. She could have been watching The Bachelor or Tiger King or any other cable news networks. But then something catches my attention. High atop the shelf on Lex's desk is a picture. 
him with someone who definitely looks like he makes a living by rapping about loose women and drugs. Only a desperate nobody would pose next to a rapper wearing jewelry more expensive than the average American's car note while holding up two fingers to the side. A woman stands next to the side of the rapper, and I recognize the nobody. Lex. The bun. I've seen that hair bun. And the dimple. I've seen that too. Mom. The bickering grows louder and you'd think the brat was acting out scenes from Criminal Minds with the family dog. It's obvious my mom has known this tool bag longer than she's led me to believe. The shouting has now turned into a lecture about having company over when the house is filthy and how Lex is home more than anyone in the family, including Rudy, so it's all his fault and in typical Lex fashion, he says, Go ahead. Blame me for everything. I've never had the pleasure of arguing over a dirty home with two parents. My jealousy turns to rage. My rage turns to desperation. I'm desperate for an escape and thank God they have a huge-ass house. The yelling continues long enough for me to slide out the window to Lex's studio. Chapter 33 Lex The row of nutcrackers standing atop the mantel judges me, either because of last night's shit-show argument that had Beckett sneaking out of my house before he could meet Ellis, thank God, or because I have no business in Natasha's home. Probably the latter. Natasha buzzes in and out of the living room, her face growing pinker with every trip. These are the tiniest sandwiches I've ever seen, I say, holding one in the air with an eye closed. Did you invite the hobbits too? She clicks the TV on and Gretchen Wieners starts bloviating about the potential for lost love in some Hallmark Christmas movie. I love that Natasha's hopelessly romantic enough to binge watch such pie-in-the-sky garbage. So, about dinner last night? I wish it was with you. Eventful, I say. An understatement. She scoffs, setting a cup of tea on the side table and crossing her arms. Think so? Of all the college girls in the world, my son ends up on a dinner date with your daughter? I always told her she should meet a nice boy in college. That she'd be less likely to end up in a drama-filled life if she dated someone from an institute of higher learning. Natasha replies with the slamming of the pantry door. The nutcrackers, particularly the ones with rifles, continue to glare at me. My son is not a boy and we don't live a life of drama. And my daughter is not some random college girl, some notch to be collected and added to someone's collection of collegiate conquests. Nice alliteration, she growls. So what do we do? What do we do? I like the way that sounds. We, as in, we have a problem and we will devise a solution. Then, after we solve the problem, we will continue to... What? We are not an actual couple, at best, but we're not an actual couple. At best, we'll soon be a couple. At worst, we're philanderers. Gretchen Wieners continues to whine on the idiot box about ruined holidays and some guy she wishes she had a chance with. She obviously peaked in Mean Girls. Definitely not Fetch. Hey, says Natasha with force, tugging on my ear. Sorry. What do we do? Go to U of H, pull into the parking lot, yank them out of class, and tell them to break it off because we don't want to end up on an episode of Mari? 
Beckett's the only one outside of the two of us who knows about us, I reply. But Avery has accused me and Ellis of cheating on each other and abandoning our family. It's only a matter of time before she figures us out. And Ellis? Her job is her other man. And it's true. I can relate, she says. Feels like I'm always working. She sits next to me on the couch. You mean, putting the fun in funeral planning? She says nothing and instead opts for a bite of one of her tiny sandwiches. There's an old family friend I invited to join us. This was before I even knew Beckett was her actual date. Natasha holds up a hand. Gulping down a bite of her sandwich, she says, Parents playing Tinder is dating kryptonite. You'll make things worse, trust me. Couldn't be any worse than what happened after dinner. Natasha leans back and raises her chin. Her perfectly trimmed eyebrows close in on one another. Dare I ask? He ended up at my house. Hoisting herself off the couch, she fires off a diatribe about Beckett lying to her. He was supposed to be studying. Just as some square-jawed model type on the idiot box tells Gretchen Wieners things won't end well between them, Natasha unloads on me. What have we done, Lex? That word again. We. She and I have done something bad. Good bad and bad bad. But we belong with each other. The more I don't see Ellis, the more I realize Natasha and I belong together. We belong together. We will fix this and make up for all the lost time we spent away from one another for so many years. We'll get through this, Natasha? She stops in front of the fireplace, and the nutcrackers look as though they're ready to fire their rifles at me. I'm tired of sneaking around, she says. Me too. And I can't help but fantasize about Christmas with her and Beckett and the girls, arguing over what movie to watch, Home Alone or Die Hard, and arguing over the fact that the latter is not and never will be a Christmas movie. These sandwiches are really good. I'm serious, Lex. Me too. I take her into my arms. She buries her head in my chest. Her hair. I love the way it smells. Lavender. Home. She makes me feel at home in a way I haven't felt at home in over 20 years. She pulls away and returns to the couch. Folding her hands into a steeple, she says, Good. Also, he told me about the picture in your studio. Picture? The one from Minneapolis? Damn it. Chapter 34 Beckett I normally get to class ahead of time, but this morning, I'm late. The door to the classroom creaks in a way which announces to everyone that some blowhard with no concept of punctuality has finally arrived. Heads crane in my direction like a herd of mindless sheep. The prof pays no mind. He's immune to distraction. The only one in class who doesn't turn to judge the late guy, a.k.a. me, is Avery. I take a seat in the back to avoid human interaction. Sneaking out of your date's house when you've kind of sort of but not really knocked it out with her mom so you can get back at her cheating dad that's sneaking around with your mom will make you do these kinds of things. Prof spews his lecture about democracy in the 21st century. Avery's hand shoots up in the air. He calls on her. She incites an eruption of laughter when she suggests democracy leads to bad things, including but not limited to... The decay of Western society, financially, culturally, and morally. 
She's definitely her father's daughter. The prof rears his head back, the same way a nun would if an atheist said there's no God and the prof is definitely a believer in the church of government. He shushes the class, but he has the authority of an armadillo in front of a speeding bus. He pulls a sleeve back and paces in front of the class, and I wait in anticipation for Avery's response to his prodding. He asks her if she really believes what she says or if she's just spouting off some random platitudes she heard on some guy's podcast. She could run circles around this buffoon, intoxicated with the scent of the boot on his neck. The heated discussion turns to a babble as I drift back to last night. My phone buzzes from inside the pocket of my jeans. The classmate next to me sneers. I ignore her, pull it out, and swipe my thumb across the screen. Ellis, when are you free for a workout? I let her wait for an answer. She's older. She knows this is all a game. What she doesn't know is... She's the hunted, not the hunter. She's the pawn on the chessboard, not the queen. Besides... I'm so pissed and confused about that picture of my mom in Lex's studio, I can't think of a witty reply. How does my mom really know Lex? Does Ellis know my mom? Or of her? Did Ellis know my dad? What would she say if she knew he died, and how he died? What will she do when I expose him to his entire family and his followers? Prof's voice... Prof's voice fades in and out and my phone buzzes again, this time causing a rumbling, vibrating noise on my desk. The class groans a collective groan. Might want to tell your girlfriend you're in the middle of discussing the importance of democracy and the rule of law, says Professor What's-His-Nuts as he pushes his glasses up the bridge of his nose. I look up and scan the class. Avery's back remains facing me, but the green-haired chick with the 20,000 piercings on her face... She glares. I glare back, then at the professor. Democracy is nothing more than seven out of eight NPCs in this class voting on whether or not to smash my phone with a hammer before I can explain to them that my sick mother just sent me a reminder to pick up a prescription from CVS on the way home. A couple of oohs erupt from the side of the class and Avery's head perks up. She turns her head and the thin pink line of a satisfied grin spreads across her face. She wags a pen in my direction as she winks. Then she turns back to the front of the class. Professor Dipshit yanks his glasses off and cleans them with his faded plaid shirt. Now, now, that's enough. The blather of our sacred institutions continues and fades into the back of my head as I slide my thumb across the screen of my phone. Time to reply to Alice. Sure, down for a workout, but we need to find a different spot. Another message comes down. Ellis again. She wants to do brunch and any brunch spot is the last spot a guy my age would fit in because guys my age should be sleeping in till 1 o'clock after a night out with the guys. Sure. Brunch. Where? Professor Dimwit's voice fades to the gentle tone of a loving grandpa as he bids us adieu. The shifting and scurrying of my classmates and their books and backpacks file out. But I remain seated. Ellis replies right away and suggests Dish Society and Cinco Ranch, and of course she has to pick Mom's favorite spot, the spot she frequents on at least a bi-weekly basis. Maybe my mom, who lives to work on her days off because these dead people won't find eternal homes on their own, will stay back. Maybe sleep in for once. Ellis says she's got some business over there and it'd be more convenient if we met on my side of town and I'm all about doing my part because this is bigger than me. 
I reply with a thumbs up. As I shove my phone in my hoodie, it vibrates again. I slide it out. Ellis again. Don't get too dressed up. You'll need something easy to slide out of. And all of a sudden, I'm a brunch guy, and brunch is the greatest creation white women have ever created. I should reply with an eggplant emoji, or that meme pic of the football player in the yellow blazer standing by a tree and licking his lips. But I don't. Mama raised a gentleman. I leave her on red. As I slide my phone back in my hoodie, a book slams on my desk. Avery hovers over me, hands on her hips as her backpack dangles off her shoulders. She demands to know why I disappeared last night. Tells me that even though I'm rude and inconsiderate, that she wants to meet again. I accept her invite, but I immediately regret it because Avery wants to do brunch as well. On the same day, I'm meeting with her mom. Chapter 35 Lex I should have never gone to Gluck's that night, that frigid freeze-your-ass-off-of-a-night in 2001. The intern standing on a table and removing a moose head from the wall to put it on his head? That should have been a sign of things to come. An omen. Had I not gone to Gluck's that night, I would never have gone on stage after accepting a $20 bet and sang a Britney Spears song to prove that I'm a real top 40 disc jockey. I never would have had celebratory tequila shots and buttery nipples after my impromptu performance of A Slave for You. That night in 2001... Had I stayed at home and opted for the boob tube, I never would have hit the stage at Gluck's for an encore. An encore performed on top of the bar with the intern wearing the moose head. Had I stayed home that night and cuddled with my black lab Max, how I missed that snuggly old bastard, I never would have performed the Nelly classic, Country Grammar. And I never would have locked eyes with a stunning brunette with spirals drooping down the sides of her face. And the brunette, the one who eyed me as soon as she walked in, She never would have sent me one of the most aggressive notes I've ever received in my life. A note requesting a private performance, passed along by one of her girlfriends. Had this brunette with chocolate brown curls bouncing about as we knocked back shot after shot, had I simply tapped out, hailed a cab, gone home, had I listened to my gut and not my nether region, things might have turned out differently. But all the should-nevers and had-I-nevers in the world could never stop the will of the universe. The universe brought Natasha into the same building to work at the same radio station to work the same events and hang out at the same after parties with the same people. It resulted in a months-long tryst during my engagement to Ellis. The will of the universe had our marriage doomed to misery from the start. But had I just slipped into my jammies and plopped myself onto my sofa and hung out with Max on my lap and Frasier on TV, I could have avoided the plague of my life. Who knew? Sitting in front of the boob tube on a Saturday night is the best inoculation against the tyranny of debauchery in a miserable future. But I own this. All of it. And wishing for a time machine and a magic eraser aren't in the cards for me or anyone in this situation. To wish for that is to wish for everything good in my life to disappear. Even though I'd love to disappear for a long time right now. All the should-never-haves and the had-I-nevers in the world won't change my situation. This is why you don't pound back tequila shots and buttery nipples, boys and girls. I'm a living case study. A sort of cautionary tale. Natasha wants to know if I plan to say something. Anything. I've made a living running my mouth for 25 years and I can't muster up a single word. Natasha wants to know why the picture, the one Beckett asked her about, 
wants to know why I would ever think it'd be a good idea to have something like that in my studio or anywhere in my house. She paces as Gretchen Wieners prattles on about her dreamy love interest in another predictable Hallmark movie. I could use some predictability right about now. Yo, she barks and snaps her fingers. It's just a picture, I say, and I'm right. A picture from a long time ago. Natasha says she has no time for games. Her arms flap in the air with the intensity of an inflatable air dancer in a used parking lot in a windy Houston day. What do we do about this? What do we tell our kid? Your kid, I reply. She says we have to manage this better, duh. She tells me all these things we have to do and say. She rattles off a list of things not to say or do as well. Our whole relationship is a forever list of things two grown-ass adults should never do, she says. Ouch. Sounds like you might want to take a break, I say. And it hurts to say that. It does. Your words, Lex, she says in a huff. We can power through this. I legit think we can. Good, I reply. You had me worried. Want another sandwich? She asks from behind the kitchen counter. Sure. I'll fix you an old-fashioned as well, she adds. Gretchen Wieners and the square-jawed, gym-rat-looking bro on TV have nothing on me and Natasha. She rounds the corner with a plate and a cocktail glass. She even garnished my drink with an orange peel. So thoughtful. Meticulous. Her face sags down with concern. She says, I'll fix you another drink. You're gonna need it. Chapter 36. Beckett. One day I'll write a book about my journey to setting Lex's life on fire. A sort of how-to guide. The first chapter will be something like, how to strategize. And the first step will be something like, don't fuck it up. But I've already fucked up my fucked up plan, which means I'm fucked. One day, though, sons and daughters of future generations will thank me for the trail I've blazed. Maybe honor me with a federal holiday and kids will have the day off from school. Banks and post offices will close. The whole shebang. In a hundred years, cities across America will host parades and festivals in my honor. And then a few nitwits with nothing better to do with their vapid lives will hold a protest. They'll demand justice for Lex types and order these festivities to be shut down. But before festival goers line crowded streets and before the mayor hoists a bronze statue in my name, I need to unfuck up the operation. The birds chirping on campus make it hard to concentrate. Under my favorite tree, they harass me, goad me. It seems as though they've been sent to tell me to hang it up and accept my fate. The fate that likely involves me walking my mom down the wedding aisle to marry the trash heap whose radio stunt resulted in the death of my father. And as hard as mom will try, he will never replace my dad. Hunched under the tree, the hum of my fellow classmates provides a soundtrack to my misery for the day. Classmates bitching about not being ready for finals. Bitching about too many finals. Bitching about finals being too early in the morning. Some of these people. The nerve. Complaining about a total first world problem when females in some parts of the world can't even go to school without getting shot in the face. Perspective, y'all. Perspective. Most of us lack it, say most of Lex's podcast guests. My mind shoots blanks as I stare at my notebook. The more these birds chirp, the louder I tap my pen, tapping to drown the little bastards out. 
Tapping in hopes of tapping into the vivid imagination my mom and so many others used to say I had when I was a wee little tyke. Then it hits me as a trio of chicks walks by. One of them with a teddy bear shaped backpack. The second one teases her for wearing a teddy shaped backpack. And the third one, a blonde with librarian type glasses, ripped bell bottom jeans and a faded U of H t-shirt. She states the obvious. At least he didn't get her a teddy bear with a secret camcorder in it so he can watch her in her sleep. The first chick cracks a smirk and shouts, duh, because the third one has a point. A valid one. Only a sociopathic maniac psycho would give their girlfriend the gift of 24-hour surveillance. No Mr. Right, or Mr. Right now, would ever think about watching his significant other sleep. 24-hour surveillance is for authoritarian governments and overprotective parents, says chick number three, shrugging her shoulders. But teddy bears with built-in cameras for surveillance are useful. In my situation, I open my Coinbase account and score. The markets are up and so is my luck. I'm in the green by 700 bucks. A little more than enough money to buy a teddy bear equipped with DVR and a 90-day standby battery. I move the funds to my checking account, add the bear to my cart, and buy. Chapter 37 Lex I remember talking with some sociologist dude. We had drinks on a Sunday for a pre-show interview to see if he'd be a good fit for the podcast. This guy with his Ken doll parted hair. I knew we'd mesh well the moment he called humans animals. He said we're no different than ants who colonize this or bees that colonize that. We're no different from groups of hyenas waiting to pounce or packs of street dogs like the ones you see in Fifth Ward. Our careers don't make us miserable because we're bored. We're miserable because we need something, or someone else, to colonize. What I thought would be another escape from the doldrums of my marriage has ended up being a trip to a not-so-fun house with reflections of my previous existence thrown into my face, contorting me and everything I once was. Natasha bounces around the kitchen. She says, this old-fashioned will be a double. That this conversation should have happened years ago, nearly two decades ago. Her face has gone from jovial when she answered the door to hospital sheet white. Her eyes droop. The shades of gray beneath them. That's not makeup. It's the exhaustion of sleepless nights. Part of me still holds out hope that she'll hand me my drink, dash into her room, and return wearing something more comfortable. But her funeral suit, the black slacks and blazer she has refused to remove, they say otherwise. Still waiting for a change of tone, a change in her demeanor, anything. I say... Why don't we head out to the other room for a holiday romp? She looks down at the cocktail glass in her hand and holds it up. I accept and she turns away, scouring the room for the TV remote. I saw you put it on the bar, I say. Thanks, she mumbles. It's the sort of thanks you give a cop who just gave you a ticket for driving 37 and a 35. Empty. I turn around to take a look and see if maybe she changed her mind. She remains at the bar, with the hand over her forehead... She talks of the many times she has played the situation out in her head. How she always knew it would never go down the way she envisioned. How she helps families plan end-of-life ceremonies and funerals and burials down to the font on the headstone. But she lacks the capacity to plan this, the talk which will end her life as she knows it. I thought I was dramatic. I take a sip of my drink and she might have made it a triple instead of a double. Wincing at the burn in my throat, I set the glass down on the side table and ask... Why so cryptic? Alexander. 
I can count on my hands how many times she's called me that. The first was on our first date back in the early 2000s, dinner at Chino Latino by what was then known as Lake Calhoun. She said she'd never understand why I want to be addressed with the same name as a comic book villain. The second time was not so pleasant. It happened a few weeks after our mutual breakup. It was when I told her about Ellis and our plans to get married and all she said was, Oh, Alexander. You almost never call me that, I say. She paces around the couch and in front of me, back and forth, pacing and biting her nails. She says nothing. Her eyes swell. Then they narrow. Hey, if it's about... She cuts me off with a raised palm in my direction, tells me to take another swig of my drink, pointing a manicured finger at the side table. I oblige, raise my glass and say, You sure know how to make them. She collapses herself next to me and buries her face into my shoulders. Wrapping my arms around her, I tug at her blazer and suggest she removes it. To get more comfy. I raise my eyebrows as she pulls away. Alexander. Okay, that's twice in two minutes and the other two times were decades ago. I say, and now I'm the one pacing around the living room. Her face plunges into her hands as her shoulders begin to bounce up and down. Between weeps, she asks me to sit down. Are we breaking... You might want to after this, she says from behind her hands. That won't happen. Not this time. Not ever. She drags her hands down her face. Two lines of gray form along each side of her eyes and down to her jawbone. Whatever it is, we can work through it. I promise. She wipes her eyes with the heel of her palm. I hope so because the three of us will need to work through a lot. The three of us? As in you, me, and... Beckett, your son. Chapter 38 Beckett Kids chirp on the turf of the courtyard at La Terra as they ignore their parents' pleas to stop running. Christmas music blares from a speaker and if I have to hear about Rudolph getting bullied by those assholes one more time, I'll rip the speaker from its cord and trample it in front of these brats. Then maybe I'll pull a Lex and tell them the truth about Santa, shatter their Yuletide dreams and ruin their lives, and their ability to trust their parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and anyone with any kind of authority. A soccer ball hits my shin as I check my phone to see if Ellis has arrived. I want to hurl the ball into the kid's dad's face. He sits a few tables away, buried in his phone, probably worried his wife will find out about his gambling addiction. I stand and palm the ball off the ground. The rug rat with a t-shirt that reads, My daddy rocks, typical suburbanite. He wrinkles his face and screams, Hey, that's mine. His dad remains oblivious, so I troll the little douche, holding the ball over my head, saying, If you can reach it, you can have it back. If not, Santa told me to mail it to him because you don't know how to take care of your shit. The little ass wipe jumps and grunts. His face turns darker shades of pink, then red, with each leap in the air. No fair, he whimpers. You're a giant. You should try playing with someone your own size, says a voice from behind, the familiar voice I've been waiting for. I lower my arm and turn around. Ellis grins as she removes her sunglasses. A little hand smacks my elbow, knocking the ball loose. I scoop it up as it bounces off the ground. Give it back shouts the runt. His dad remains unfazed and his kid's shirt is completely false. I take a knee, tucking the ball under my shoulder. 
Ellis puts one of the arms of her sunglasses into the corner of her mouth. She assesses me and I'm ready to assess her. Holding a forefinger to my mouth, I tell the kid to listen, to be careful with his ball, because you'll never know if it'll hit someone's baby or somebody's grandma. My granny needs a cane to walk, squeaks the kid. See? Can I have my ball? Sure, I say as I hand it back to him. The twerp runs off to his dad, face still glued to his phone, probably stalking Dallas Cowboys cheerleaders on Instagram. It's Sunday in December, after all. You're surprisingly good with kids, says Ellis, nudging me with her elbow. I've heard it said that we're all children, no matter how old we get. She points me to our brunch spot, Dish Society. Where would you hear something like that? She doesn't want the answer, but I'm about to give it to her. Some podcast, I say. We file into the restaurant, and the scent of sustainably sourced food with cage-free awesomeness and 100% organic whatever intoxicates me. Ellis hands me a menu, and what I want is not on the menu, but I give it an obligatory glance. Mom and I have eaten here enough that I can recite her order by heart. I get the brisket and eggs with two extra house biscuits, and Mom gets the grilled pesto chicken sandwich with the house Texas pecan basil pesto sauce on the side because females like to add unnecessary extra steps to everything. Ellis tells me the only podcasts she listens to are true crime and entrepreneur shit. Show me your podcast subscriptions and I'll show you who you are, I say. I've heard that before. Of course she has. Eh, some guy you've probably never heard of. Try me, replies Ellis. His name is Lex. Her poker face impresses me. She turns her attention to the menu. Her wrist sparkles as she points down a finger at each item. Never heard of him, she says. Nice watch, I say. We can't all be children, she says, holding it up and staring at it blankly. Some of us grow up because bills have to get paid and mouths have to get fed. This is just a small perk of not having to be a second-class citizen. I thought we were talking about children. The couple in front of us, these 20-something-year-old Cinco Ranch yuppies, they give us a simultaneous parted-mouth stare. Ellis flashes the female a stoic alpha-female glare. The boyfriend shifts his eyes down to the ground and looks away as I raise my eyebrows. He'll probably order soy milk with his latte and drink with his pinky out. We are, says Ellis. I say nothing. She continues as the line crawls, and why does everyone have to come to brunch today? Fucking Cinco Ranch. Ellis moves her purse from one shoulder to the other, lifting her blouse up in the process and revealing a sliver of skin and a portion of a tattoo. She catches me staring and says, Another perk of not being a second-class citizen is, you can do whatever you want with your body. Fact check true, I say, putting the menu back into its cubby. Ellis brags about her tattoos and her friend that does ink as a side hustle. She has one on her ankle, another on her wrist, another on the small of her back that she refers to as the only one she regrets because she hates when people call them tramp stamps. Who cares what other people think, I say. We finally order after what seems like a thousand years later, and she tells me it's her one hang-up, her one insecurity. Everyone has at least one of them, she says as we take a seat. What's yours? Quit with a TED Talk, lady. Stirring a straw in my glass of water, I say, Hmm, haven't given it much thought, too busy with school. And sinking your husband's life. 
She talks about the importance of self-awareness, and this is rich considering her brunch date with a college kid half her age while her husband is doing God knows what with his mom. Lana Del Rey plays overhead. She sings about dealers and finding fathers. Outside the restaurant, I see the back of a blonde with curls I recognize. So, that little exchange with the soccer ball kid? Says Alice, shuffling sugar packets in her hands. You mean the second-class citizen I should have reported to the cops for assaulting me with his ball? Ellis winks and points a finger gun at me. Cute, she rasps. The two of you. It was cute, what with the Santa spiel as his father was probably more concerned with fantasy football. And you are more obsessed with me than being a mom. Hmm, thanks. My dad died when I was little, so I guess it's just a thing, you know? Ellis smiles and snaps a finger at the waiter, and thank God this is only a temporary thing, because who the hell snaps at the help? I look past Ellis, who has now gone full Karen about her latte having regular cream instead of almond milk. I can tell the difference, and you'd be wise to know why that's important, she barks. The blonde still stands outside the restaurant window, hand on her hip in full Hollister model mode, the bracelet on her right hand. I've seen it before. She reaches a hand in her purse and fishes it out. So, says Ellis, exhaling a five-hour sigh. So, about your first world problem? Ellis lectures me about lactose intolerance and getting older, and if this is what it's like to get older, Elon Musk better create a fucking time machine ASAP because a life doomed to brunch and conversations about lactose intolerance sounds miserable. Besides, she says, pausing to lick her lips and make air quotes, don't you want to work out? I do. Thought you'd never ask. Ellis snaps her fingers at the waiter again, this time asking about our food, and if she keeps it up, he'll end up on TikTok bitching about the worst restaurant customers in Houston. The blonde. The one outside the restaurant. She's gone. My phone buzzes on the table. Ellis flashes a glance at me. It's Avery. Hey, I'm on your side of town. My mom's got a business lunch, and I figured we can meet up, in case you change your mind about brunch. And I figured we can meet up there. Chapter 39 Lex Natasha chases me to the front door, pleading with me to stay. She apologizes for blindsiding me and grabs my shoulder as I reach for the doorknob. I tug away. She bats down my hand and says I can't run from this. From her. From our son. But you can hide something like this for over 20 years? I shout, pulling my hand away. My chest swells with anger. I can feel my face growing tomato red and I will blow up if she refuses my next effort to leave peacefully. She swipes her fingers across her eyes. Digging a tissue from the inside pocket of her blazer, she tells me all I do is avoid conflict. Every time something doesn't go your way, you run. Not true, I say, rubbing my temples. I lean against the door and we stand in silence. Gretchen Wieners brags from the living room about another holiday crisis averted. If only everything were as easy as a rom-com during the month of Christmas. I pinch the bridge of my nose and shut my eyes and it hits me. Avery and Beckett were on a date the other night. No. Yes. Natasha drops herself onto the wicker beach chair in the entryway. With haggard gray eyes, she smiles a jack-o'-lantern smile. Her maniacal laugh is her white flag of surrender. Her laugh makes me laugh and she demands me to stop. She stands up and begins pacing around the entryway, listing all the worst-case scenarios, as if I was born yesterday. 
What if they did what we hoped they didn't do? What if she got pregnant? What do we tell Alice? A pit of anxiety sinks to my stomach. My cheeks burn and my arm tingles, and Gretchen Wieners wails about her boyfriend's mother in the other room. My phone chimes. Avery. I ignore it because Natasha's paranoia has me paranoid and I lack the capacity to open a message that could very well reveal me as the grandfather of an inbred baby. I thought this kind of shit only happens in cut-and-shoot Texas. Natasha starts knocking the back of her head against the wall and I wouldn't knock my head into a brick wall, but I'd settle for being strangled with the garland on the shelf above her. It's Avery, I grumble. Natasha stops knocking her head on the wall. Forming a steeple with her hands, she nods toward my phone. Well? Well, nothing. So how do we tell them? How do we add ten gallons of gasoline to this dumpster fire of a situation that'll surely leave me dead? Never. She sighs and starts knocking the back of her head on the wall again. A concussion won't help, I say. She stops and glowers. Rolling her eyes, she repeats. When do we tell them? I repeat myself. Never. Withholding life information for long periods of time appears to work for you, so it most certainly can and will work for the rest of us, no? Not fair, she hisses. Bells and chimes blare from the TV in her living room, and this is the most insufferable time of the year, of the decade, of the century, of my life, our lives. I turn my back to her, and she flies to the door, ninja-style, barricading herself, me, and my chance to escape. Lex. Natasha. What do we tell them? What do we do? Where do we go from here? She pulls on my windbreaker and pounds a fist lightly on my chest. Please, don't leave without helping me figure this out. My body swells with heat. Sweat forms on the inside of my shoulder blades. Her eyes widen. Tears bubble at the bottom of her eyes and this won't work. How could she keep something like this from me? When did you find out about Beckett being my son? I ask and I start going through the file cabinet in the back of my mind. I've always known, she replies. I take a seat and plant my face in my hands. My head throbs and dizziness kicks in. She sits next to me and places a hand on my thigh. I reject her touch, moving her hand to the side. She tells me she deserves all the anger, and she does. In the background, Gretchen Wieners gets rejected again by her boyfriend's asshole of a mom. Natasha says she didn't want to get between me and Alice. So you just happen to move to Houston all these years later to tell me? Beautiful. Alexander. My phone chimes again. Avery again. Natasha tells me to answer my messages and she's in no position to tell me what to do. But if Avery doesn't get a response soon, she'll start blowing up my phone because she's her mother's daughter and they don't like it when people ignore their messages. Fine, I say, swiping a thumb across my phone to unlock the screen. The phone chimes again and I need all these females in my life to leave me the hell alone for one day or 10,000. Must be important, mumbles Natasha. It's called communication. Families do that. You should try it sometime. My phone. The electronic leash I love to loathe. I slip it into my pocket. She doesn't want to stay with her mom, but she doesn't want to take an Uber home. So, dad's limo service it is, I guess. I reply. Natasha puts a hand on my thigh. This time, I don't reject her, even though I should. What do we do, Alexander? Start with never withholding information like this ever again? Natasha nods. Deal. She extends a hand. I don't shake it. As for how we tell everyone? Well, 
My voice trails off. I say we don't. Not wise. The queen of keeping secrets for one-fifth of a lifetime has no authority to tell me what's wise. I guess we'll just have to cross that bridge when we get there. I hope we never get there. Chapter 40. Beckett. One doesn't merely slip out of a brunch date at his favorite spot with the Stifler's mom of HTX by walking through the front door and ghosting her forever. So I take one for team me and do something I hate. I excuse myself to go to the men's room. Public restrooms make me cringe harder than catching Lex in my house wearing nothing but a Santa hat. Doesn't matter how clean they are. One of Lex's podcast guests referred to it as bashful bladder syndrome. Ellis, ever the alpha female, taps her sparkling, overpriced watch and says, Don't be long. Your food will get cold. And I'm getting a little hot, if you know what I mean. I do, but everything about this sucks. And Adele comes on the radio and starts crying about going easy on her. And why can't the world go easy on me for a change? I don't. I say with a smile, one of my girlfriends once said was dangerous. Care to elaborate? Under the table... The soft skin of her foot warms its way up my calf. She takes a sip of her latte. With her tongue out, she swallows the straw, and I can't believe Lex is cheating on this, on her. But he's cheated me and my family out of so many other things, it actually doesn't surprise me. I yank my leg back and it jostles the table. Her grin disintegrates into a blank stare. If you quit fucking around, you'll find out sooner rather than later. I admire a woman who knows what she wants. Cool, I reply, because it's the only word I can force out of my mouth. The buzzing of my phone catches my eye. We both look down at it. I close my eyes, hoping it's anyone but Avery. At this point, I'd even take a text from Lex if it means getting out of here without her noticing me. But it's Avery because the universe hates me. Because my mom says everyone gets what they deserve. We all do. I hate that she's right because the universe needs to reevaluate itself. I tap my thumb on the phone. She wants me to meet her at La Sintera for brunch, and what is it with women in brunch at La Sintera? She needs company, someone who can keep her from downing seven too many mimosas, and I'd like to see Avery after seven too many mimosas. Ellis worms her foot up my leg again. Everything okay? If your husband cheating on you with my mom and you cheating on him with me and me about to hook up with your daughter is okay, then sure, everything's okay. Never better, I reply. Without waiting for her to add to the exchange, I stand and head to the restroom. My palms heat up and a bead of sweat drizzles down the side of my face. The door to the restroom stands in front of me and I can't go in. Won't go in. Go in, go in, go in, go in. I can't go in. Hey, kid, you gonna go in or not? Some of us have bladders to empty, growls a voice from behind. Sorry, I say. Bashful bladder syndrome. And I dash out the side door as I hear the old fucker giggle. The old fucker with the bald crown and Dallas Cowboys jersey. He says, You young people are weird. There's a syndrome for everything. I'm about to develop a case of beat the shit out of an old man who can't keep his mouth shut syndrome. But I don't. I'm civilized. My escape from what's about to turn into the brunch from hell begins with a glance to the left. Avery stands about 20 yards away from my position and less than 2 yards away from the kid with the soccer ball. I don't wish harm on anyone, especially Avery, but it'd make my escape easier if the brat kicked his ball into her back. Or leg. 
With her face gorilla glued to her phone, she makes 10,000 expressions. Agitated, amused, happy, angry, surprised, disappointed. Pulling my hoodie over my head, I walk past the tea shop that's always empty, past a yoga studio. My favorite yoga position is all of them when the class is all female. From a distance, I catch a, hey, don't turn around, don't turn around, don't turn around. My phone chimes as I reach the street. It chimes again as I wait for the dill hole driving negative 50 miles per hour because he won't remove his eyes from his phone. My phone chimes again as I reach the street. It chimes again while I wait for what seems an eternity because the dill hole driving negative 50 miles per hour won't remove his eyes from his phone. It isn't until I get to the other side of the intersection that I realize something. Something pertinent to my escape from the brunch from hell. My car is parked right outside Dish Society. Above the sound of a screeching toddler, I catch another, Hey, this one's louder. I cross the street, and there's no turning around now. A third, Hey, sounds even closer, and it sounds like Avery. The shopping crowd at La Sintera is the forest, and I'm a deer trying to escape a wolf. My stride is that of a spy who just got busted. A stride that no matter how fast will end up in a botched mission, which means no workout with the Stifler's mom of HTX and no retribution for Lex. Adjusting my hoodie, I pick up the pace. My phone buzzes again and it's Ellis. Fuck. She wants to know if I got stuck in the toilet and I kinda wish I did. I don't reply because she and I will work out and I will reveal Lex. Another hey reaches me. This time it's more urgent, more aggressive. The peck on my shoulders signals the end of my mission, the end of me. Hey. I turn and her face contorts to form the most confused face I've ever seen. Oh, hey Avery. She shakes her head and snickers. You had me looking like some sort of crazed lunatic. Well, I have been told that I resemble Shawn Mendes and you are wearing a Shawn Mendes concert tee, so... I circle a finger next to my head. If there's anything 21st century females hate more than long lines at brunch and guys with poor personal hygiene, it's being called crazy. She smacks my arms and wants to know if I lost my hearing. My phone won't stop buzzing. Avery grabs it from my hand and if Ellis so much as thinks about texting or calling, this operation really is screwed. My phone rings and I hope it's mom, but I'd settle for a telemarketer or a desperate nonprofit or a scammer. Anyone but Ellis. Avery's face turns blank word doc white. Holding my ringing phone in the air, she snarls and hisses. Ellis Griffin, a.k.a. the Stifler's mom of HTX? Chapter 41 Lex Pulling into the parking lot of Los Terra reminds me of my disdain for crowds, especially this time of year, and at a time like this. Long Lost son, I whisper. I have a son. Beckett is my son. As I traverse the garage, I suddenly wish for someone to back into me. Not me and my car. Me. I wish for someone to back into me with enough force to send me to the hospital, but not so hard I become permanently disabled. A broken arm would do. Or leg. Whichever. I'm not picky. But a broken bone isn't in the cards today. As I head to the courtyard, busy with the activity of children running about and parents conversing, I scan my phone for messages. Avery wants me to meet her at Dish Society. Must be Ellis's idea. I see Avery, but she doesn't see me. Still time to turn around and vanish. Still time to make her call an Uber. I do neither of these things. 
Avery's hands flap in the air, as if she's giving a college lecture to a room full of assholes. The person she's talking to, or chastising, stands at a distance. I can only make out their backs. Avery's voice grows louder as I approach her. Her mousy voice doesn't sound so mousy when she's angry. She stabs a finger in her friend's chest, the one who stands still, the one who hasn't moved since I found the two of them. Avery brandishes a smartphone and shakes it in her friend's direction. They shrug, holding their arms out, preacher style. Deliver me from Avery style. I'd like to be delivered from Avery too. And Alice. And Natasha. Everything about this day reminds me of a video game without a reset button. You know how when you're a kid and you can't get past level one of a really hard game and you reset the console because you hate the idea of the inevitable loss? You'd rather hit reset and see what happens. But then you still end up sucking harder than a porn star in her 500th movie. Avery turns away, revealing the ire of her tongue lashing. Beckett. Shit. I should head back the other way, but I don't. I call for Avery because she could use a wingman right about now. That, and I must do everything in my power to keep these two from doing something only people in Clute, Texas condone. Avery turns, hair whipping to the side like a shampoo model. Beckett turns, too. His eyes are huge. They take up most of his face, like one of those Beanie Baby things. I don't know what to say, so I say the first thing that comes to mind. Hello, son. Chapter 42 Beckett As if Avery bitching at me about my phone isn't enough, Lex rolls up. If the Greek gods of antiquity really do laugh at us mere mortals, then my life must have them in heavenly stitches. Lex, in his GA4BME brand sweatshirt, this middle-aged maggot worming his way into the garbage bin of my existence, he has the balls to call me son. Son? I want to knock him into the sun. I want to light him on fire so he burns with the fire of a million suns. Excuse me, I say. He and Avery embrace. Thank you for coming to get me, father. She says with a blank tone in her voice, the kind of tone that foreshadows your death in three months, the kind of tone that tells you to fire the doctor and call the local hospice facility. I want to die right now. And who calls their dad father? He's no priest and I will exercise this demon out of my family. His family too, as long as Avery doesn't tell anyone about my phone. My phone. Ugh. Daddy Lex and Avery Bear start walking away and I ask about my phone. My request falls on deaf ears. Lex stops. With the confused look of a calculus student who didn't study for finals, he clasps his bear-sized hand on my shoulder. Says the problem with you kids is your phones are electronic leashes. Chains. Chains that enslave you. Keep you from everything that actually matters in life. You kept my dad from my family and you must pay. Avery glares at me with the expression of a church lady whose husband farted during mass. Holding my phone up with a thumb and forefinger, as if it's tainted with COVID, she dangles it at me, limp noodle style. Just when I think the crisis has been averted, Lex asks why she has my phone. Her sour expression suggests she wants to spill the tea. All of it. Because her precious mom and her precious dad deserve to know. And they do, but on my terms, not Avery's. Go ahead, I say, daring her. Tell your asshole of a dad what's on my phone so I can tell you what's on his. Lex's eyes home in on me, then on her and back to me, and from her to whatever's behind her, and no. No. No! That better not be Ellis. Jack! shouts Lex. 
Jack approaches, towering over the three of us with the look of a hero summoned to save a damsel in distress. He wears Lex brand joggers with a plain black t-shirt and slides that he drags with each step. Each shk gets louder and more annoying. He play punches me like we're long lost college frat bros. Avery's eyes disappear into the back of her head, a trick I've only seen The Undertaker do in the wrestling ring. Lex smiles a broken railroad track smile. Avery scoffs and looks away. Jack, bless his heart, he tries. Such a good boy. He boasts about his drive around the entire Houston area in search of a Pandora charm. Says it's turned into a scavenger hunt between him and his dad and the loser has to take the winner to the arcade. Nothing like going broke because of a piece of jewelry, he says. I've only met the guy twice, but Jack is the handsiest person I've ever known. The smack of his hand on my back echoes like a volleyball spike. He may have just bruised a kidney, but right now, I wouldn't mind it if it meant not being around Avery and her daddy. Jack fiddles with his GABM4E dad cap. Such a kiss ass. What brings you out here? Before I can offer a reply, Avery quips. A meeting with the Stifler's mom of HTX? Huh, Jack blurts. Steve Stifler. Lex, desperate to jump in, desperate for relevance in the presence of three people half his age. He says, That movie's the same age as you kids. Avery hisses in my direction. It leaves Lex and Jack puzzled. She taps her feet, waiting for me to say something. Waiting for me to come clean to her dad about her mom. His wife. The wife of the guy who's the sole reason why I have no dad. Jack punches a hole in my arm. Way to go, you cougar hunter, you. And he growls as he makes a paw with his hand. I can bottle the toxic masculinity seeping from his pores and sell it to guys who order soy lattes. Anyway, Avery snipes. Beckett was about to leave. Lex's shoulders droop with the relief of a patient who just got a negative paternity test. Not yet, says Jack. Not yet? Repeats the trained monkey Lex. Pulling Avery in with an arm around his shoulder, Jack says, Last time we saw each other, you had mentioned wanting to introduce your mom to the Beemeister. Shit. He scoops me in with his other arm, and to the average person, we're long-lost relatives. Lex breaks into a coughing fit when Jack says he ran into Ellis. I told her I'd track you down, and she said no, but I insisted, and here we are. Jack drags us down the sidewalk, ragdoll style. With the clearing of his throat, Lex scurries in front to block us, and I've never been more thankful for his presence. My phone buzzes, and Avery wants to know if it's the Stifler's mom of HTX. Huh, bellows Jack. Stifler's mom. Avery peels herself away from Jack and stands next to that useless meat suit, Lex. Manicured hands circle the air, telling me to tell her parents who the Stifler's mom of HTX is telling me it'd be the perfect brunch topic of conversation, the perfect addition to the holiday season. Dude, let me see what's on your phone, says Jack, and I can't tell if he's playing. My phone buzzes again, and Lex tells me to get it. Might be important, he says, looking at the pocket of my hoodie. Yeah, chirps Avery, pecking a finger into my chest. Someone important. Lex tells her to calm down. Yeah, take a chill pill or ten says Jack. The sound of an orchestra in the courtyard starts playing. The fat cat meow of a violin shrieks through the air. Avery grumbles something unintelligible, maybe a witch's ex, and storms off. Let's go, Dad. Mom's waiting for us. Lex ignores her command. Leaning in, he tries to grab my shoulder. 
I block his attempt by faking the cough attack. Jack rears his head and says, Whoa, dude, spread love, not the Rona. Lex is the real virus. My phone won't shut up and neither will Jack. He gushes on about the Stifler's mom of HTX. If you don't answer those texts, pass your number to me, bro. I'm always down for a blind date with someone twice my age. Ha! I don't think I've ever seen you smile this big, says the reason I rarely smile. Avery is yet to turn around. The crowd of shoppers pulls her in, opening up like a zipper and closing. Opening and closing. Lex tells Jack to find Ellis and Avery, instructs him to shoot him a text when he gets to the table. Don't send a search party. I'll be there in about ten minutes. Tell Avery to get the usual. Brisket omelet, extra cheese and salsa on the side, says Jack, and of course this kiss-ass knows Lex's order. With a two-finger salute to his forehead, Jack takes off. Now, says Lex, clearing the throat I'd love to punch with a set of spiked brass knuckles. Now... Looking at the sky, Lex lets out a deep breath and it smells like he could use a trip to the dentist. Or we can take a trip to his house and I can tie him to a chair and extract his teeth with a set of rusty pliers. He tells me that mom needs me and my mom needs him out of her life. My life. Out of his own life. You don't know what my mom needs, I say. That's fair. And it's not. Because I've heard him and his gurus and his life coaches yammer on and on and on and on about the word fair having no meaning because the universe doesn't care about fairness. But I thought fairness doesn't matter. The orchestra cues up Santa Baby, the song playing in the house when I walked in on Lex and my mom and I want to ram the conductor's baton in his ear, but I won't. I'm civilized. Lex wants to meet up for dinner, anywhere I want. You, me, and your mother. We have a lot to talk about. His voice trails off as he coughs in his hands. He holds my gaze with squinted eyes and a raised chin. He says he's not going anywhere, like it or not. Let's meet up at your house and we can explain how we all know each other. How about that? He closes his eyes, dragging his thumb down the bridge of his nose. You're right. Your mom and I have a lot of explaining to do. His eyes turn pink. A tear streams down his face and I'll make him cry even more cowards. They all cry when they realize their fate. You love to see it. He pats the side of my arm and says, you're right. We should speak sooner rather than later, preferably before Christmas. So now I'm your son and you get to make holiday plans for me and my mom. Tears well up in his punchable eye sockets. His face wrinkles, almost deflates into a sad ventriloquist doll version of himself. He bows his head and shuffles his feet on the ground. My phone buzzes again. Before he can order me to check it, I say, Yes, oh precious Saint Lex, I'm checking it. Mom, dinner, tomorrow. You, me, and Lex. Chapter 43 Lex Beckett's lower lip quakes as he stares at his phone. He growls softly as he glares at me from beneath his V-shaped eyebrows. Not exactly the kind of look one would expect from their son. As families of all shapes, sizes, and colors walk past us and around us and in front of us, I'm reminded of the time I never had with the kid in front of me. My son. He shoves his phone into the pocket of his hoodie and his hands into his joggers. Tells me I ruined his life and all I'll do is ruin his mom's. I can't argue that, I say. And it's not a lie. A family. One with two kids, both of about 12 years old and a toddler, remind me of what I could have had with Avery Beckett and Piper. I bow my head as he rails into me. 
and don't expect me to just be okay with mom's little dinner plan. He huffs, blowing out 40-degree air in my face. I usher him toward a bench near the sidewalk and invite him to take a seat. He refuses. I take a seat, and he asks about dinner with my family, my perfect little tribe, my perfect little holiday dinner, and my perfect little suitor for my perfect little daughter who will be the perfect pair of secondary parents for Piper while her actual parents sleep around behind each other's backs. He paces in front of me, and it's almost like he knows Ellis has another man, her business. I've never pretended to be perfect, I say. My phone chimes. Natasha. Beckett eyes me like he wants to slap it out of my hands, scoop it up, and ram it down my throat. It's your mom, I say. Look, I understand you don't understand anything about me and you never will. He's right. How could I understand him when I can't even understand myself? Two little kids, probably seven and eight, scuttle between us, wearing matching green sweatshirts. One says good elf and the other says bad elf, and I see Avery and Beckett in their faces. The weight of a thousand tons of guilt presses down on my body. As I put my hands on my thighs to stand, Beckett sits next to me. Whatever it is you have going on with my mom, it ends tonight. I don't answer because I can't think of a way to articulate anything to someone hellbent on not accepting me. The rage he feels toward me is equal to the rage I feel toward his mom, the love of my life. I will accept what she hid from me, but he will never accept me as his dad. Beckett bemoans my hypocrisy about living the ideal life in accordance with the teachings of a bunch of dead Roman emperors from 2,000 years ago. Shooting his body up and off the bench, he scoffs. An older couple with a young couple of about the same age as Avery and Beckett. They cross our paths and I see my kids and those kids. The older couple frowns at me, then at Beckett. The woman, wearing a red beret and matching red peacoat, crumples her nose and upper lip in our direction like we're peasants. Excuse me, she says with a southern drawl. Beckett looks her up and down. He snickers and says, Excuse you and he shoes the woman and her husband away. The younger couple they're with is oblivious to the exchange. He's definitely my son. I smile. How can you smile right now? He's right. I have nothing to smile about and everything to lose within the next day, week, month, year, forever. All I can say is... I pause to hold back tears. His face crinkles. What? Our exchange has earned the attention of passers-by and people sitting at the adjacent patio. Only thing missing is a sea of smartphones pointed in our direction, ready to make us TikTok famous, ready to make us an example of how not to behave on next door. I stand and attempt to put an arm around him. He swats it away, but I keep my cool. Don't you dare touch me, he says. Can't say I wouldn't respond with the same angst. I am his mother's boyfriend, and he thinks I'm trying to replace the man he thinks is his father. But I'm his dad, and I will do everything in my power to correct this mistake, to make up for all this lost time, to earn his love and respect. He clenches his fists, and it wouldn't surprise me if he introduced them to my face. Peckett, please, I say in the most calm tone of voice I can muster. Walk with me for a minute, then I'll leave you alone. He unclenches his fists and obliges. What is happening right now is bigger than all of us, and I promise we'll get through it. Beckett seethes. His eyes narrow to slits as he tells me I have no idea what he's been through and that he'll make sure I'll never ruin another life again. He assures me we'll talk. All of us. And the thing between you and my mom? He repeats. 
that ends tonight. I can promise you that we will air everything out, but I cannot promise you that, I say. My phone chimes again, and I ignore it. Of course you won't answer it, he says. You ignore it like you ignore your family, and I bet that's my mom you're blowing off. I look at the notification, and he's right. It's Natasha. He reads the expression on my face before I can tell him he's right, and he takes off. Trying to keep up, I say, She's worried about you. About us. A hand taps my shoulder. I stop. A familiar voice tells Beckett to stop. Avery. With her hands on her hips, she demands to know how the hell we know each other. Go ahead, Lex, Beckett says. Let her know how we know each other. He spits on the ground next to me and storms off. Avery starts to chase him, then stops. What's going on, father? Shaking my head, I walk toward Dish Society to meet up with Ellis and Jack. Can't get any worse from here. Chapter 44 Beckett Whoever said you're the average of the people you spend the most time with, they're right. I wonder if the rule applies to General Hospital because Mom has managed to work her life into a bad soap opera. Nina and Carly squawk on the TV and it sounds like the only thing that can save them from their misery is a good lay. Sundays are for GH reruns. With her feet kicked up on the armrest of the sofa, Mom pours herself a glass of wine. She slur asks, Where have you been? Nowhere. Don't play games with me, son. Rich words coming from the woman having an affair with the guy responsible for my father's death. Lex told me he ran into you and his daughter. Something about the two of you on a heated exchange? Nina and Carly keep squawking and I wish someone would check me into General Hospital. Or any hospital, right now. Lex needs to mind his own business before he tries to intervene on his daughter's behalf. I say, picking up the remote from the coffee table to turn the volume down. Mom snatches it from my hand and orders me to take a seat. She slur lectures me about tone and decorum and how she always taught me to respect people even if they might not deserve the benefit of the doubt. Another swig of wine and her glass is empty. Her liver probably hates her the way I hate Lex. Go get me a bottle of 19 crimes, she barks as her swaying body points to the wine rack hanging above the stove. Looks like you've had enough, I say. Bottle. Now. When the man in your life drives you to drink, it's time to break things off, I say. She holds her glass up, wine speak for shut the hell up and pour me a glass. I twist the cork out of her bottle of 19 crimes and I can think of 19 crimes I'd like to commit against Lex in front of his family. Minus Piper, of course. I'm not a psychopath. Thank you, Mom says behind gritted teeth. Her hand pats the couch next to her and I sit. She swirls the wine in her glass and knocks back about half of it. Your dad and I, she says. Pausing to take a sip, she continues. Your dad and I used to love snuggling together on random weeknights with a bottle of wine and GH on the TV. She gazes at the fireplace and the flames reflect off the tears collecting in her eyes. Two sniffles and another swig later, she talks about Minneapolis. December through March suck the way June through September suck in Houston. Great food, great bars, great place to live. Minus the life-sucking winters. Sometimes when Mother Nature was in a good mood, she'd let the snow accumulate on a weekend so we could build snowmen and have snowball fights. He was so competitive and would sometimes forget how strong he was, throwing a fastball in my direction at point-blank range. 
Equal rights, equal fights. She rolls her eyes and giggles. Blah, blah, blah. Letting out of five too many glasses of wine moan, she says, You'll get along great with your father. I think you mean we would have gotten along great? The wine glass starts to slip out of her hand as her head rocks back. She squeezes the stem as I try to take it. I pat her on the shoulder and she releases it. She doubles down and tells me things will change forever. She lifts her head in slur whispers, cupping my chin. Just you wait. Just you wait? Mom yawns a five too many glasses of wine yawn. The empty goblet slides out of her hand and I catch it before it hits the floor. She slur whispers thank you and rolls over. Two crinkled pieces of paper lie under her back. Pictures. The first shows a baby dressed as a reindeer. Curly jet black hair and huge acorns for eyes. It's true what mom's friends say about her. She never ages. This early 2000s version of her wears a Justin Timberlake justified world tour t-shirt and a trucker hat that reads, JT's future ex-wife. Next to her is a frosty tipped dude with a mic in one hand and clipboard in the other. The scar above his lip reveals a younger version of Lex. But he doesn't look as happy as mom. His smile is broken. The jagged line across his face tells me he's nervous about something. The second pic shows mom's face beaming with joy, looking at Lex as he holds me. His face looks like I just pooped in my diaper and he wants to give me back. Mom shuffles on the couch and I stuff the pics into my back pocket. Just you wait, she mumbles with her face planted in her cushion. My phone buzzes four times in a row. Ellis. Mom wants to know who keeps messaging me, and as much as I'd love to tell her it's Lex's wife, I can't. Who is it? Nobody. I lie. Pulling a throw blanket from the love seat next to the couch, I try to lay it on her. She bats it away. No. Too hot. Eleven bottles of wine because of Lex Griffin will do that to you. I said the quiet part out loud. Ellis blows up my phone again and I should stop avoiding the inevitable. Mom's drunk body lifts up like the Undertaker in a Hell in a Cell match. Lex does not drive me to drink, she barks unintelligibly. Leaning down to kiss her on the forehead, I whisper, Whatever helps you sleep at night. My phone won't stop chiming and I want to take it to Lex's house, find him, tie it up and shove it down his throat. But I don't because only a deranged lunatic would do such a thing. Mom lunges an arm in my direction. It's her failed attempt to grab my phone. Sounds like you might have a stalker. Before I can reply, Mom's body collapses back into the couch and I hope she's down for the count. Crouching over Mom, I whisper her name at the lowest possible volume. No response. I whisper a little louder. Mom, wake up. She replies with a snore and the coast is clear. I sneak into the kitchen and pour the remaining contents of 19 crimes in mom's lipstick-stained goblet. I pull the crumpled pics from my back pocket and lay them out on the bar. How in the hell did he know my mom all those years ago and why in the hell was he holding me? Lex's face makes my stomach turn. As I take the pics and tear them in half, my phone buzzes again. Mom moans for me to shut my phone up. A barrage of notifications greets me from my phone. Angry ones. Looks like the mama bear wants to dig her claws into me and not in the way I've been wanting her to. The Stifler's mom of HTX? Really? I don't even look like her. 
When were you going to tell me you're trying to get into my daughter's pants? You disgust me. Your family disgusts me, I whisper. The slamming of a book falling from the coffee table to the floor breaks my trance. Mom's foot knocked it over. Who... who are you talking to? She falls asleep again. The woman with two impressionable daughters who uses a college kid as a cure for her midlife crisis treats me like I'm the one with the problem? Please. Ask any schmo, some dipshit with a pink and white baseball tee tagged with the word feminist, and they'll tell you with a straight face that I'm the problem and that my existence alone fans the flames of centuries of toxic masculinity. That Lex, and this doesn't discount the fact that he is a dick, is 1000% to blame for Ellis's shortcomings. And these oppressive forces, the ones that made Ellis into one of Houston's most influential women, absolve her of any wrongdoing. After all, she's the innocent woman trying to escape the clutches of a male-dominated world and her lapse in judgment is actually my fault, not hers. Oh yeah, it's true. My phone won't shut up and mom won't shut up about my phone not shutting up and she could use an Ambien or three. Ellis never wants to see me again. She will. I turn my phone to silent before mom turns into a belligerent drunk and kicks my ass. It vibrates and Ellis's cellular assault continues. She can't believe she let herself fall prey like this. Yawn. She should be more concerned about her daughters inheriting her poor judgment. See also, Lex. Another text comes in. Before I check it, I knock back a swig of 19 crimes for mom's goblet. Ellis wants me to leave her alone and she wants me to leave her daughter alone. I reply. Look who wants to be a mom now. I follow it up with a crying, laughing emoji for good measure. Chapter 45 Lex We get to Dish Society and Avery orders me to order her food. Pineapple shrimp tacos, no sriracha aioli, extra pineapple pico. In front of me stand two thirty-somethings, not a couple. One pleads with the other about trying to work things out before Christmas, that the family cannot go another year without their parents speaking to them. This isn't natural, says the guy. Mom and Dad didn't raise us to be this way. The woman, scornful in her appearance and with an upside-down you for a mouth, holds her head up in silence. She says, you raise a flock of sheep, and therein lies the problem. Oof. I crane my neck around the barrier separating the line from the dining area. Ellis sits, slouched back in her chair, stroking her chin with a forefinger and thumb. Across the table, Avery sits with one arm across her stomach like she's nursing a tummy ache. With the other hand, she fidgets with the sugar dispenser, something she does when nervous, angry, or nervous and angry. Excuse me, sir, grumbles a man behind me. Thin mustache with a Rolling Stones t-shirt and faded jeans. He scoffs. The rest of us would like to order if you haven't figured out what you want. You can always stand off to the side while you make your decision. I giggle and slide the menu into the cubby. Sure thing, my man. Just avoiding dinner with the old battle axe. The stranger, this lanky individual straight out of a 70s punk rock album cover, tells me I should be so lucky that his recently widowed dad dreams of his battle axe. And who even refers to women as battle axes anymore? He obviously has never met Alice. He says, Strange way to refer to someone most people would call their better half. And I agree. Ellis is better. 
Better at rejecting her husband, better at getting angry because of first world problems, better at blowing off her family to be with her one true love, work. I order and pay and head to our table. From across the restaurant, I catch Ellis glaring at me. I respond with quickly arched eyebrows and an air kiss. Once upon a time, she'd respond by pretending to catch my air kiss and throw it into a fake trash can. And now, nothing. Ellis and Avery don't greet me as I sit down. Their bodies are turned to the side and away from each other. Hello, Ellis, I say. She turns her head so her chin rests on her shoulders. You really don't have anything to wear besides merch from your stupid podcast, do you? Avery grumbles and mouths, for fuck's sake. I tap her leg and shake my head. Your mom looks so beautiful when she loathes me, I say as I set my phone down. Avery adjusts herself so she faces Alice. With her hands together, she stares down at her phone, then at Alice. As she begins to speak, the waiter swoops in to save me from the inevitable tongue lashing. He sets our drinks down and every time Avery begins to speak, he asks us something. Can I get you a drink from the bar? Can I confirm your order? Weather's pleasantly chilly, isn't it? Would you like more water? Four nose in a row and Avery seethes. Slamming an elbow on the table, she lays her chin on the palm of her hand. Jack had to leave, she says as she lifts a glass of water to her mouth. She takes a sip and continues. Good thing he did. We can't stand it when the two of you try to play matchmaker. Ellis ignores Avery. Picking up her phone, she grunts and mumbles. Your dad can't seem to stop fantasizing about him being your husband. Avery sneers and says, He and I talked about that after the little stunt he pulled the other night at Cyclones. I say, An innocent gesture. Avery shakes her head as Ellis swipes her thumb up and down her phone, grumbling something unintelligible. Ellis clears her throat. Excuse me? Which one of you plans to relieve the babysitter? Avery drowns herself in her tacos. Gross says Ellis. Avery shimmies her shoulders and with a mouthful of food, she says, Know what's really gross? You and Beckett on a date? Ellis smirks, crosses her legs and asks, What's really gross, Avy Bear? The waiter swoops in again to save me from hell on earth. He wants to know how everything is. Wants to know if Ellis wants to switch from a latte to a glass of wine. Could I get you anything, ma'am? One perfect, a yes, and a no later, and he dashes off to get Ellis a glass of Jesus juice, and not even my Lord and Savior can save me from this nightmare of my own making. So, about the babysitter? Ellis asks with her hands in the air. I do have another meeting and need one of you to step up and get Piper. Avery nearly chokes on her food. Between coughs, she says, Meeting? That's what you call it? Ellis's sculpted eyebrows look like two broken arches under her hairline. Her face flushes pink and now she's the one choking. Avery's nostrils flare. Whatever, Mom. And she takes another bite of her food. I do the same. Ellis thanks us for letting her almost choke. If exaggerating were an Olympic sport, says Avery. Now, now, I say, trying to moderate the discord. Avery, it's gotta be you because I also have a meeting. I thought you were picking me up. That's why you're here, right? Ellis chuckles. She fishes a compact out of her purse and opens it. You know better, A.V. Bear, she says, clicking it closed. We can't count on him for anything. Pushing her plate away, Avery says, we make her lose her appetite. 
We don't know how to communicate, and we never make Piper a priority. And since when do either of you ever do business on a Sunday? Before either of us can answer, Avery stands up. Placing her hands on the table, she turns to me, then Ellis. But I guess there's no rest for the Stifler's mom of HTX, right? Ellis tells Avery to shut the hell up and an episode of Jerry Springer is broken out before my very eyes. Heads turn in our direction. Women groan as though we're an unwashed family of rednecks who got teleported to suburbia. I clear my throat and Ellis glares. Seethes. Sit down, Avery. She growls. Avery obeys like a good little soldier. We sit in silence for what seems like a thousand years. Between refills of wine, Ellis looks at her phone and taps away. All while Avery stares at her mother. Food's great, I say. Shut up, says Ellis without even looking at me. But what would really be great is Avery telling me why she's referring to you as the Stifler's mom of HTX. Avery excuses herself from the table. I need to go to the restroom. Ellis chuckles, her face still planted in her digital leash. Your bladder's timing has always been impeccable, Avy Bear. Avery huffs and rams her chair into the table, knocking over a glass of water. She turns to me and says, Mom should tell you. And she storms off. Mind telling me what the hell is going on between you two? Ellis lays her phone on the table. After her 9,000th swig of wine, she moans. Says, I haven't known what's going on between the two of us in years. About the same amount of time I haven't known about you and me. Finally, something we can agree on. Ellis tips her glass back and I can hear her liver calling me an asshole for not doing anything about her drinking. A hand wipes across my shoulders. Avery, you should consider saving some wine for everyone else, mother. Funny thing is, when Avery calls Ellis mother, it's always in an angry context. When she calls me father, which is all the time, it sounds different. Like I'm the favorite of the two and I probably am. Ellis tells Avery she doesn't like the way she calls her mother. Sounds too much like the mother and mommy dearest. Cold. Callous. Just like Ellis. Anyway, mother. Snipes Avery. My sweet Avery. She knows how to push buttons when they need to be pushed. Ellis hisses and takes another swig of wine. Avery continues and I lean back, enjoying my front row seat to this dumpster fire of an exchange. Avy Bear says if she spent just a little more time on her family, in believing in them instead of tearing them down, then maybe my podcast numbers would skyrocket the way we want them to. Hey, it's not a failure because it doesn't generate hundreds of thousands of dollars, I say, annoyed, as if the only barometer of success in life is how much revenue someone can generate so they can spend assloads of money on a closet full of overpriced shoes while your kid's mental health takes a back seat. Ellis snickers. She swirls the remaining contents of her wine glass. And if you spent a tenth as much time studying as you did chasing boys, maybe you'd have a decent GPA. Not like she'll use any of these classes in the real world anyway, I say, trying to ease Avery into my corner. Avery fidgets with the food on her plate. Thank you, Father. Amen. I raise my glass of water. Here, here, I answer. I sip from my glass, nearly choking on ice, when Avery says, Speaking of boys, mother. I sip from my glass, nearly choking on ice, when Avery says, Speaking of boys, mother.
Ellis's eyes narrow. She knocks her wine glass over, a failed attempt at evading the subject at hand. Jack's mother and I spoke a few days ago. She says the two of you should just hurry up and date and get married already. My phone buzzes. It's not Natasha. Good. It's the babysitter, I say. You and Dad need to stop trying to make me and Jack a thing. You and Jack is much better than you and Beckett. Avery rolls her eyes into the back of her head. She drags a hand down the side of her face. Well, you both need to stop. It's more offensive than the work schedule that has Piper wondering why she never sees her mom. I excuse myself from the table. As I back my chair out, Avery grabs my wrist, tells me the three of us need to talk. She turns to me, then Alice, and says, You, me, and the Stifler's mom of HTX. Chapter 46. Beckett. The mother-daughter assault on my phone continues, and I'm happy to play the whipping boy because it's a small price to pay for what'll happen to Lex. I reply to Avery. Really, really sorry. I can explain, but totally understand that you want nothing to do with me. I reply to Ellis. Oh well. Is what it is. I set my phone down next to the confetti mess of a pic of me, mom, and that douche nozzle Lex. Mom groans something in her sleep. She fidgets under her blanket. I kiss her forehead and head to my room. On top of my desk, cluttered with empty water bottles and crumpled potato chip bags, sits my laptop. The internet browser remains open, waiting to give me the update I wanted. Lex has arrived to pick up Piper from the babysitter. I know this because Ralph McRuggington shows me. God, I love teddy bears with built-in cameras that help you spy on people. Lex pays the babysitter. He looks dejected, like he just took a verbal assault to the face. He escorts Piper to his car. She asks him for a trip to McDonald's and he obliges because that's how parents like him make up for their shortcomings. I shut off my computer and head toward the door to make sure mom is still sleeping. She is. I'm out of the house and on my way to save Christmas and by save Christmas I mean ruin Christmas the way Lex ruined mine. The car ride takes longer than the torture I can't wait to inflict on Lex. Poor asshole. He thinks he can be my stepfather when he can't even be a father to his own kids. He thinks he can be a husband to my mom when he can't even be a husband to the wife he already has. My phone chimes and it's Alice. I tap my dashboard screen and Siri reads her message. Don't go thinking any of the time we spent together means anything because it doesn't. Oh, Alice, you delusional hag. My car asks if I want to reply, and I should, but I opt out of telling my car to tell Alice to go fuck herself because that would be crass. I should tell my car to tell her about Lex and my mom, but breaking it to her via text lacks creativity. I pull into the Griffin's neighborhood, and I'm glad I'm not an EMT because the car in front of me is driving two miles per hour. Ten years have passed since turning onto Lex's block, so I honk the horn and keep my hand there for a solid five seconds. They get the hint and speed up. An empty driveway greets me as I walk toward the garage. My phone chimes as I crouch between two cypress trees. I scan the perimeter to make sure the coast is clear before engaging in any kind of digital interaction. It's Ellis. Sorry. That last message may have been a little harsh. I scan the driveway once more before letting my fingers push all the right buttons. All good. Menopause tends to make women act out in over-emotional ways. I understand. The branches of the cypress tree irritate my skin and I better not break into hives. Not here, not now. The rumble of an engine steers my attention toward the front of the driveway. 
Lex. He appears to be having a conversation with Piper through the rearview mirror. His face is haggard, as if he bears the weight and stress of the world on his shoulders. I can tell Piper is challenging him in some way. His arms wave around and he finally capitulates, opening the door to his car. As he bends down to reach inside, I think of all the military and self-defense gurus, the ones who warn against leaving yourself exposed, even during daylight hours, even at home. And I'm glad he doesn't heed their warnings. Chapter 47 Lex Years ago, when I was a baby DJ, my buddy Tony scared the shit out of me. The sun had just gone down and the dim lights of the parking garage provided little lighting. I had just arrived for an evening show and crouched into the back of my car to pick up the file folder full of papers that spilled onto the floor after a hard break because Houstonians drive like shit. As I scooped up the last piece of paper, I felt a hard something press against the small of my back followed by a voice demanding money and the keys to my beat-up Mustang. I damn near pissed myself, screaming at an octave I had no idea my voice could reach. The guy's voice erupted into laughter. It was Tony. He collapsed on the hood of my car, bellowing and pointing, pointing and slapping his thigh. Dude, you screamed like a little bitch. He told me to never leave myself exposed like that. I told him to go fuck himself. Seriously, though, he said. You could have been carjacked or worse. Situational awareness. Try it sometime. Tony's right, and so are the spec ops guys and self-defense experts I've had on my show. But even the most situationally aware people let their guard down. The cold steel of a weapon presses against my back, exposed from leaning into my car to unstrap Piper from her booster seat. She remains oblivious to the criminal in our midst, eyes closed, singing Frosty the Snowman. Her little voice sings louder as she dances with her teddy bear. Piper, I say in the most calming way I can, and I pray to God I don't get murdered in front of her in the driveway of my home. The weapon presses harder, and I can't tell if it's a gun or a knife. The criminal wants me to take it easy, and I do. He says, Allow me to ruin your Christmas. If only he knew my Christmas is already ruined. Piper Bear, I say, Stay here with your teddy bear while I talk to one of our neighbors. Daddy, I have to go potty, whines Piper. Poorly timed bladders run in the family. I'm out of the car now and stand face to face with the asshole. He wears a Krampus mask and a Santa hat. He points his weapon toward my stomach. It's a knife. He demands me to shut up. Demands me to keep my hands where he can see them. Take the car, I say. It's yours. Daddy, I have to go potty now. The masked imbecile shoves me into the side of my car and I plead with them to take it. Let me get my daughter out and it's yours, I promise. He scoffs and I've heard that sound before. The voice behind the mask tells me to shut up and follow instructions. Whatever you want, I reply, and that knife is getting too close to my stomach. The masked douchebag holds his blade against my chin, tells me to tell Piper to go inside. I oblige. He snickers from behind the mask and I've heard that snicker. The tip of the blade presses hard against the bottom of my chin and I think he drew blood. And Piper won't shut up about not being able to unbuckle her booster seat. With a free hand, the masked jackass runs a finger under my skin and it stings. He bleeds, he whispers. Tell her to go inside and go straight to her room. 
I oblige because I don't want my daughter to see this demon stab me in front of her. He tells me to tell Piper to climb to the front of the car and get out on the passenger side. Can't have her screaming bloody murder if she were to see me. The voice. It sounds like a growly version of someone I know but can't place it because I'm too focused on not getting butchered to pieces. Piper climbs to the front. Good little soldier. The Krampus spins me around so he stands behind me. Any second and his blade will pierce through the small of my back. Good girl, I say. Daddy will meet you inside. He lowers his voice. And so will I. And he presses the blade harder against my back. Go inside, Piper Bear. I'll be there to read you a story. Just go to your room and change into your jammies and give Rudy a cookie, okay? Piper marches up the driveway and she turns around. The masked prick shoves me with a free hand. Tells me to make sure she listens to Daddy. I'm a fish on a cutting board about to get filleted and if Piper doesn't turn around and do what she's told, she'll get a front row seat to Iron Chef Krampus's knife skills demo. It's okay, Piper, I beg. Go inside. Remember, Santa's watching. The Krampus chuckles. Tells me Santa's gonna watch him make my life a living hell. The Krampus chuckles. Tells me Santa's gonna watch him make my life a living hell. He pokes the knife into my back, and now he's broken skin. It burns, and all I can think of is all the unfinished business I'll leave if he kills me. Please, not in front of my kid, I plead. And where the hell are my nosy neighbors when I need them? He grunts and says he'll only tell me one more time to get Piper in the house. Daddy, I'm scared to go inside by myself, she whimpers. Krampus scoffs and shoves me with his free hand. Tell her? To go inside. With a firm voice behind gritted teeth, I issue another command and she finally obeys. As soon as the door opens, Krampus turns me around. Shoving my back to the driver's side door to my car, he tells me to get on my knees. He flings his blade closed and punches me in the nose. My head bounces off the driveway and the baby blue sky fades to black. Chapter 48 Beckett I can already hear the authorities. If I get caught, they'll accuse me of stabbing that worthless meat suit. They're wrong. It was just a little prick. Two of them, actually. He forced my hand and so did his family, with the exception of the little one. I'm just glad she finally listened to her stupid shitbag of a father because I almost had to put him out in front of her. Then I'd have to figure out how to keep her quiet and hurting kids was never part of the plan. Fucking Lex. Fuck him and fuck Alice. Violence isn't my strong suit, but Lex brings out the worst in me. He lies motionless. Did I kill him? Shit. I hope not. Shit. It was just a couple of pricks and a heel palm strike to the nose. Didn't think I was capable of killing him. I take a knee so I can check his pulse. A flurry of voices floods my ears from across the street. Neighbors. I remove my mask and shove it under Lex's car. One of the neighbors hollers a greeting of sorts. Uh, hey Lex. He shouts for me to wish Ellis a happy holiday. The only good thing about this exchange is they can't recognize me from a distance in the curve of the driveway and the shrubbery blocks their view. They think I'm Lex. I give an obligatory wave as they pass. With a hand on Lex's wrist, his pulse fills me with relief. His phone buzzes from his back pocket. My hand is close to his ass, and this is not how I plan to spend the day. It's Mom. 
Does she ever know how to leave a married guy alone? She wants to know how he's holding up. Wants to know if he plans on telling Alice. I should reply. Maybe something like, go to hell and never speak to me again. But I don't want to break mom's heart. Lex's unconscious but not dead body gives me quite the workout. All the sandbag workouts in the world could never prepare me for dragging Lex's pathetic carcass up the driveway and into his house. My phone chimes. I should ignore it because I have bigger fish to fry, but the Pavlovian trigger goads me into digging it out of my hoodie. Mom. She wants to know why I left and if I can pick up some aspirin on the way home. I reply with a thumbs-up emoji, shove my phone back in my hoodie, and continue dragging Lex up the driveway. The concept of dead weight is an actual thing. Lex can't possibly weigh more than 190 pounds, but it feels like I'm dragging a sumo wrestler. He moans as his head bumps into one of the decorative stones by the gate leading to the backyard. A good swift kick to the ribcage renders him motionless again. Daddy! Shouts Piper as I drag Lex into the kitchen. Daddy's busy, sweet pea, I shout in my most neighborly voice. Stay in your room, or else you'll get scarred for life from watching me do unspeakable things to your poor excuse for a father. Lex begins to regain consciousness, and I treat him with a left hand to the chin, the chin I pricked him with. I love the sound of skull hitting tile, especially when the skull belongs to Lex. I dig through the pocket of my hoodie and pull out a roll of duct tape. A few rolls around his legs and a few around his wrists should keep him still. He starts to regain consciousness again and now it's time to play dirty. I tell him he forced my hand and he plays stupid. Says I'm crazy. I tell him if that's true and if I kill him then I'll literally get away with murder. He has no response. I stand up and dig through the kitchen drawers. He wants to know what I want. For you to shut up or else your little girl gets treated to the scare of a lifetime. I whisper. One would think the owners of a house this big and a kitchen this big would be more organized, but not the Griffins. Lex pleads with me. His voice quakes. He offers me money from the safe in his office. He offers me the 12-word seed phrase to his crypto account. Says I can take it all. Just leave Piper out of it, he whimpers. I open drawer after drawer. One with coupons and pens and half-used crayons. Another stuffed with mismatched kitchen utensils. And finally, a drawer with towels. I pull one out. This one matches the red on your chin and neck, I say. Son, you don't want to do this, he murmurs. I'm not your son. Not even your stepson. He squirms. I kick him in the back and he whinnies in pain, heaving faint breaths. Desperate breaths. Beckett. I reply by strapping the kitchen towel around his mouth and sealing it shut with duct tape. Don't say my name. And I slap him so hard it stings the palm of my hand. I've never gotten so much pleasure from pain. Daddy, can you read to me? Piper's voice sounds close. Too close. As in, not in her room where her dipshit daddy told her to go. Lex's eyes droop. Defeated. Daddy! Daddy had to get something from the car, but he wanted me to tell you to go back to your room. I want my daddy and so does Rudy. Lex's eyes widen, his way of begging me to untape his mouth. I crouch down and whisper, No. And I rake a thumb across my neck. You'll be there in a second, I say. Lex's phone buzzes. Ellis. I'll be home in 20 minutes. 
Chapter 49 Lex Nothing in life can prepare you for the moment your son beats you, stabs you, and duct tapes your limbs together and your mouth shut. My nose throbs and Beckett will finish me off at any moment. I wiggle my fingers, but they don't move much because Beckett knows too well how to duct tape a person's body parts together. He slaps my face with my phone. Says Ellis will be home soon. Says she'll be in for a treat. Wait till she learns the truth. I try to speak from behind the kitchen towel taped around my head, but it's no use. My please don't do this sounds like a gumbo of random letters. An auditory captcha. Piper screams from her room and Beckett shushes me. He walks to the edge of the living room. Daddy's helping someone right now and your mommy will be here soon. Sit tight, okay? Please say okay, please say okay, please say okay. Piper whimpers an okay, and Beckett returns to the table, shaking his head. He spins the blade of his knife on the tabletop and wants to know if all the females in this house are so difficult all the time. They are. I nod with my head and attempt to smile, but it's hard to smile with a bloody saliva-soaked kitchen towel strapped around your head with duct tape. Now, he murmurs as he scopes out the house. Where were we? He walks to the wall next to the pantry. It's covered by a huge chalkboard and topped with artwork painted by Avery when she was a little girl and Piper. Pictures of Rudolph with brown fingerprints for antlers. Red, white, and black dyed macaroni noodles glued to a green piece of construction paper to form a portrait of Santa. Cute wall, he says, pulling off a blue piece of paper topped with a cotton ball snowman. He lays it on the table and stabs the snowman. Says how parents just love to cling to the past, a time when everything was innocent and magical. He continues to stab the snowman and prattles on about how weird it is that people can hold on to shit like glued-up cotton on a piece of paper. The way he homes in on the snowman makes me wonder when he'll turn the kitchen into a murder scene from Criminal Minds. Poking his finger with a knife, he says, You wish you can go back to a time like that because kids... We kids? We are easier to control. You don't have to worry about your mistakes creating monsters. He paces around me, picking the knife on the tip of his forefinger. Right, Lex? I nod my head as he begins to lean close to my face. Big mistake. With all my might, I hurl myself up and into his face. He falls onto the kitchen table as I crash to the floor. He greets me with bulged eyes, a snarled mouth, and red cheeks. He giggles maniacally and shakes his head. Nice try. He crouches down, slaps me in the face, and dots my eye with his bloody finger. It feels like he reached my brain. My chin stings and so does my back, and I hope to God Piper listens to Becca because she can't watch her brother maim her father. He steps on my nuts because he's a lunatic, and is it wrong for me to wish he'd just put me out of my misery? I try to be strong. To not let him know I'm in pain, but the foot to my privates has other plans. The sadistic creature smiles and says, You've controlled the past for too long, Lex. And now, the past has come to play catch-up. My eyes flutter and I see three Becketts. Three too many. He says the time has come to make me pay for what I did to his father. But I'm his father. I groan, trying to plead my case. The front door swings open. Ellis and Avery, as they always do, even when angry, declare their arrival. I might not die after all. Chapter 50 Beckett
Ellis's and Avery's mouths dropped down like the creepy-ass Christmas caroler figurines on the bar. This isn't what it looks like, I say, because I can't think of anything better to say, and I wish we can go back to simpler times like Taco Tuesday at Nymphas with drunk Margarita Chick. Ellis stiff-arms Avery and stands in front of her. Waving an arm in the air, she says, Call the cops. I sigh because guys sigh when women make things difficult. I raise my knife and kneel down, holding it to Lex's neck. You don't want to do that. Ellis tells Avery to set the phone down, to not call the cops. She wants to know where Piper is and she starts screaming her name. Avery follows suit as they survey the area. Hold your voices down, ladies, I say. She's safe and sound in her room and knows she has no idea this wretch put himself in this position. I stand up and kick Lex in the ribs for good measure and he replies with a bitch-like grunt. Ellis starts to walk toward me and I wave the knife in her direction. Funny how now, all of a sudden, you care about your husband and family. She wants to know why I'm here and how I know where she lives and why Lex is beaten and bound and if I have any idea what she'll do to me. Easy now, Mama Bear, I say as I play with the knife. None of this is about them or you. I poke a forefinger with my knife and the pain rejuvenates me. A dot of red seeps out and turns to a steady stream as the Griffin family watches. I lick my finger. Tastes? I pause to smack my lips. Tastes like copper and revenge. Lex fails an attempt to kick me. Ellis and Avery start to charge my direction, but I remind them who's in charge. I raise a knee and lower a foot to Lex's cheek. His busted lip and nose tattoo the floor with a battered image of his face. A work of art. Avery's eyes, those beautiful eyes, they should be thanking me for this experience. And in a year, they'll admire me as the man who relieved her of Lex, the man who changed the course of her life forever. But I see fear instead, and I'll settle for that. Beckett? She says my name, and my name sounds different from any other time she has said it. Cold. Distant. Scared and trembling with fright, she puts a hand on Ellis's shoulder, takes a couple of steps forward, and says, Beckett, what do you want? Ellis huffs and rolls her eyes. I'd rather be in a room with her alone as Lana Del Rey and the weekend tell us to take off our clothes. Avery, do not negotiate with him. Avery weeps, falls to the floor, and I warn her about getting too close. I've never hit a woman, but there's a first time for everything. Mommy! Shouts a voice from outside the kitchen. Ellis arches her eyebrows in relief and looks toward the living room. Piper, stay in your room. I'll be right there. Good girl, I growl. My phone buzzes and I wish my mom would leave me alone. Leave me to right this wrong. Lex's eyes bulge out of his head as I inform Ellis and Avery that his side piece, a.k.a. my mom, has just sent me a message. I step on his crotch because he deserves to have his testicles crushed. Avery doesn't look surprised and neither does Ellis. Okay, so he's banging your mom and I almost banged you, says Ellis. I'd say we're even. Silly girl, it's not about getting even, I reply. Avery lifts her arms to the side of her head. Tugging at her hair, she begins to scream at Lex and Alice. And me. Then at Piper because she won't stay in her room and how can the universe put such insufferable people in this poor kid's life? Lex's phone chimes on the floor next to him. I point the knife at Alice and Avery. 
I scoop it up and tap 0222 to unlock the screen. In what should be one of the greatest moments of my life, Mom has just messaged Lex that she's outside his house. Chapter 51 Lex The doorbell rings and Beckett screams in anger. He slams my phone to the floor, stomping it to pieces, and says, Great. Just fucking great. My mom's here. He lets out a roar and slams a fist into my face. I no doubt look like a bloodied Picasso painting. Beckett continues to air out all of our dirty laundry as I lay here, bound and broken. Broken and helpless. Helpless and throbbing with pain. My temples pulse. One eye is swollen shut, and my other one sees three Beckett's, three Averys, and two too many Ellis's. I moan, trying to ask about Piper, but Beckett answers me with a boot to the stomach, and I wonder how many more kicks before he ruptures something. The doorbell rings again, and he commands Avery to open it. He tells us this is the moment he's been waiting for. Ellis tells him he has no way out, to give up and hand over the knife and forget this ever happened. Easy for her to say. The clicking of Natasha's boots echo through the hallway, and this isn't how I pictured the truth being revealed, but at least I don't have to worry about Avery and Beckett becoming a couple. Two Natashas appear next to Ellis, and I'm not ready for what happens next. Ellis commands Natasha to get her son out of the kitchen, out of our home, to do it ASA fucking pee before she takes matters into her own hands. Mom, you don't want any part of this, says Beckett. Why do you always have to show up everywhere and how did you even track me down? I want to know too, but I also want to be untaped and ungagged first. I kick at Beckett and he plunges a fist into my working eye. It feels like he might have cracked a socket and I start to see black. Beckett, no, begs Natasha. Feet shuffle about the kitchen and I hope nobody gets killed. Feet shuffle about the kitchen and I hope nobody gets killed. Beckett, says Ellis in a calm tone. Calm like when she's about to manipulate somebody into doing something she wants them to do. Beckett glares at Natasha. When were you going to tell me this animal was responsible for my dad dying when I was a little boy? No, I'm your dad. Wait a minute. Beckett warns everyone to back off and tells them they should be thankful for tonight. They'll hang a portrait of him above the mantle and we'll celebrate Beckett Day on December 23rd, right before Christmas Eve, right before the day Lex ruined my life with his little radio stunt. Little stunt? Fuck. That stunt? I try to power my eyes open, but the weight of a ton holds them shut. Ellis and Avery gasp and moan as Beckett tells them about my Krampus stunt. A stunt from a different chapter in my life. A chapter I've been trying to revise and correct for years. And that's not even Beckett's real dad. I'm his dad. I wince in Beckett's snickers. A stabbing jolt of misery shoots into my thigh. His knife. I hope you missed the main vein. Beckett shouts a deep inversion of Natasha's voice. No, Mom, replies Beckett, kicking my leg. Beckett, let Avery go and check on Piper, says Ellis. Fine, he says. Good. You need to do something with this heathen in my kitchen, orders Ellis behind gritted teeth and stabbing a finger in my direction. Now. Beckett says he needs to finish what he started with the heathen in her kitchen and I guess this is it. This is really how I go out. Duct taped, 
gagged and in my kitchen in front of the people who matter most to me before I can come clean to them about everything. Beckett? Natasha's voice doesn't sound as deep anymore, but my eyes still feel like they weigh three tons. Beckett? Please stop hurting your father. My what? I brace for impact. Nothing. The clink of the knife hitting the floor rings my ears. I beg your pardon, says Ellis, and I hope Ellis doesn't grab the knife and finish what Beckett started. She laughs the most maniacal laugh I've ever heard, and I might actually prefer a blade to the throat over what happens next. Chapter 52 Beckett I should never have dropped the knife. Ellis darts to the floor with ninja speed. Unnatural for somebody in a tight-fitting sundress and heels. Maybe she'll finish off Lex for me. The authorities will see her with the knife and her prints on his body. Mine too, but I could tell them I was trying to protect my father. My father? Lex is my father? I should never have dropped the knife because the mama bear's claws have picked it up off the floor. She smacks Lex with her free hand and calls him a motherfucker. And he is. He literally fucked my mother and this motherfucker is my father. My life is a lie and maybe she'll put an end to it too. But no. No. She lunges at my mom and I should never have dropped the knife because the knife is in my mom's chest. Ellis has set my life on fire and is fanning the flames with my mom's blood. I reach for Ellis's shoulder. I've never hit a woman, but I'd kill one if it meant saving my mom even though she's been hiding the truth from me and I can't believe this bleeding sack of shit on the floor is my father and who in the hell is the other guy who died all those years ago? Ellis flings an arm back, raking a nail across my face. Back off, you putrid son of a bitch. Mom, shouts Avery from across the house and the sound of her voice makes me want to hurl because I went on a date with my sister, my goddamn sister. If there's one thing I've learned from listening to hours of Lex and his guests, it's the importance of gratitude. I can hear them now. Science has proven time and again that shifting your mindset to one of gratitude can increase levels of serotonin and oxytocin, which increases happiness. So I should thank the gods for this predicament. At least I won't be engaging in any kind of behavior endorsed by those rednecks in East Texas. Avery shouts at Ellis again and her mom ignores her again because she has a gold medal in ignoring her kids. What's mommy doing? Asks Piper and I can't see if she can see me and I never meant for her to see any of this. I only wanted to save her and Avery from Lex and holy shit I went on a date with my sister. Avery's my sister and now I wish Ellis would stab me. Not fatally though, just enough to make me forget that I went on a date with my sister. I rub blood off my face and try to stop Ellis again. I fail. Too late. Ellis removes the knife from Mom's chest and then rams it into her stomach and the shrieking is the worst sound I've ever heard in my life. Worse than the day I met Lex. I never meant for any of this to happen, but damn it, why did she have to keep this secret from me? Ellis removes the knife as Avery begs her to stop and we'll never have a normal Christmas again. There'll be no visits to Santa. Fuck that guy anyway. No baking cookies for Piper's teachers. No making homemade presents for lunch ladies. No Christmas movie marathons. No last minute shopping at the mall and someone stop this deranged lunatic. Keep Piper in her room, barks Ellis. You stabbed my mom, I mutter, quivering at the fact that I'll never have the chance to hear my mom explain everything to me. Why did she hide this for so long? Who was the other guy? And why Lex? 
Ellis points the knife in his direction, and now I don't want the son of a bitch to die. I refuse to lose both of my parents in one night, but Ellis has other plans. Why, Lex? I kneel in front of Lex, my dad, this imbecile who I've despised ever since the day I met him. Ellis swings the knife at me, slicing my arms as I hold them in front of my face. Lex grunts and we scramble about, on top of and around each other's bodies. I knew following you back to Houston was a mistake, cries Ellis, wagging the knife in the air, drunk with anger. Another slice to my arm and I army crawl to the door, to my escape. Ellis leans over Lex, my dad, leans over him and screams, screams about him ruining her life. How he ruins everything he touches. I can't disagree. Mom lifts her head and thank God she's not dead. She lifts her head and how this is possible is beyond me. Ellis, she moans. Mom writhes in pain, holding her stomach with one hand and her chest with the other. Ellis is so consumed by anger she doesn't hear my mom calling her. Ellis, she says again, and again she goes unanswered. Mom's head drops down. From the floor, she investigates her blood-soaked hand. Shrugging off the pain, she locks her eyes on me and winks. She grabs a vase on the floor next to her and swings it at Ellis's head, knocking her out. Mother! shouts Avery. Mom crawls to Ellis's motionless body and punches her in the face before collapsing to the floor again. I crawl to Ellis's body to check for a pulse. Nothing. She's dead. Like me on the inside. I scoop up my knife before checking on Lex. Placing the blade on his cheek, I slice the tape, unwind it, and remove the towel from around his head. Beckett, whimpers Lex. Don't talk to me. Beckett, mutters Mom. I crawl to my mom and beg her not to die and leave me here with him. Lex, my dad. I beg her to stay alive so the two of us can work things out. I'll call 911 says Avery, and I still can't believe I went out on a date with her, my sister. My arms sting as blood dries into rusty stains on my skin. Beckett, whispers Mom, and she's a shade of white I've never seen before. I shush her and tell her to wait for the ambulance. Don't shush me. And don't... Don't hold on to rage. I need rage and will know nothing but rage if she leaves me on this planet with Lex. Mom's eyes flutter open and shut. Her mouth trembles and she gasps for air. She stretches an arm toward me and cups my chin. Take care of your father. Her head droops to the side. Sirens wail from outside Lex's house as we lay on the kitchen floor. Lex weeps and asks me for forgiveness. My body stings and feels numb all at once. I ignore him not because I hate him. I do. And not because I'll never forgive him. I probably won't, don't judge me, but because mom died in front of her son with the one thing Lex talks about ad nauseum, dying with unfinished business. Chapter 53 Lex Go ahead. Blame me for everything. For years, I lived that mantra, and still do. I built a brand, small, but I built one. For years, it was about ownership and accountability in the face of a society hell-bent on pointing fingers and passing the blame to others. Whispers and beeps and buzzes sink in harmony as I lie awake, but with my eyes closed. I couldn't open them if I tried. I hear voices, probably nurses, 
They cross-reference my vital signs, my blood pressure, my heart rate, the bruising on my lung, the possibility of a splenectomy. A man chimes in, voice calm and cool, a little too calm and cool. He sounds like he might have a collection of organs in his basement. Given his good health prior to this, he pauses to clear his throat. This episode. Your father has a solid chance of recovery. It's only a spleen, after all. Oh, that's all. Just a spleen, no biggie. A groan fills the room. I wish I could open my eyes, but I can't. All I see is a blackish-pink chasm of nothingness. Another voice chimes in. You ought to be glad he took care of himself. Because of his good health, he can continue to live an active life. He'll be prone to infection, but mostly within the first month. And it all depends on how well he recovers. So we should keep monitoring him over the next couple of days. We'll see if the swelling has subsided and go from there. Either way, he's alive and you should be thankful. Heck, there's a good chance we won't even have to remove it. A hush falls over the room as the shuffle of footsteps dissipates. I didn't realize Beckett, my son, beat me so bad. My head spins and my ears ring and I have no idea how long I've been conked out and when the weight of the universe will lift itself from the top of my eyes. Dad? Avery. Say something, she says. I can't. Anything, she says. Even if I wanted to, I'd say the wrong thing because there's nothing I can say that will bring her mom back, bring her lives back, bring everything back. Don't you quit on me, Dad. A hand, cold from the frigid hospital room air, lays itself on mine, caresses it, grips it. Piper's with Jack's family while I focus on getting you better, and you have to get better because I can't plan Mom's funeral alone. There it is. Look, I know things got ugly, but she would want you to be there to say farewell. We need you to get better. We need closure. All of us. There's no way in hell she or anyone from Ellis' side of the family would want me anywhere near the funeral. I won't tell anyone in the family what really happened, whispers Avery. Grandma and Grandpa? They don't need to know. Nobody needs to know. Oh my God. God. And when this is over and you're better, we can all go to the zoo, just like when you and Mom used to take us. A hot drop falls on my arm. A tear. Even when I can't talk, I make my daughter cry. Avery's hand massages my arm. Up and down, from my elbow to my fingers, she makes me promise to spend an entire day at the zoo. Makes me promise to get there before it gets hot and the parking lot fills up. And we have to take pictures in front of the elephant water fountain and the lion water fountain and feed the giraffes and talk to the baby elephants. I want so bad to give her a yes, but the oxygen mask strapped to my face tells me I can't. I want to give her a thumbs up or a nod, but I'm so weak from God knows what they put in my veins. I can't. Avery weeps. We can power through this, Daddy. You're a griffin. We are griffins. We've got this she whispers with a cracked voice. Oh, Avi Bear, we can. We will. My eyes flutter, but the left one remains mostly shut. I'm pretty sure Beckett's beatdown left me partially blind. Fluorescent lights beam down, and I wish they'd beam me away, beam us away from this new reality, this new normal. A blurry head, 
Avery's head rests on the railing of the hospital bed. Her hands continue to massage my arms. The room comes into focus. Machines surround us. I shift my eyes around. Too late for self-awareness, I know. The ambient noise of the hospital reminds me of Grey's Anatomy. With my free hand, I muster the strength to lift the mask off my face. Where's Dr. Gray and Dr. Yang? Avery's head perks up. Daddy! She squeezes my arm and starts to kiss it. Easy now, Avy Bear. Did you hear me this whole time? What about the doctors? Did you hear that too? I did, unfortunately. I wince a smile and wink. Yeah. She squeezes my arm again and starts kissing my hand. She tells me not to worry, assures me we'll be okay, that at least she and Piper still have their father and family bonds can never be broken. She tells me how good I slept and how the medicine worked so well I didn't snore. Not one bit, she says. I turn my head to the curtain, walling us off from the doorway to the room. A shadow appears from behind it as Avery continues making plans for life after leaving the hospital. We can move back to Minneapolis and forget this godforsaken city. We can start over. We can go to the state fair again. Take road trips to Duluth in the winter. Take that extra long road trip to Mount Rushmore we had always talked about. Look at me, she whimpers. She scoffs and shakes her head. Look at me getting ahead of myself. We haven't even planned the funerals. The funerals. Plural. What have I done? The shadow behind the curtain doesn't belong to a doctor. I know this because no shadow would stand there in such a menacing way. My eyes shift down and the shoes aren't covered by surgical booties. The feet creep below that blob of a shadow in the curtain. Avery sobs, her eyes closed tightly. Tears stream down her face. She says she refuses to lose both of her parents within the span of a week. Says she's prepared to stand guard 24-7 to make sure nothing happens to me. The shadow behind the curtain stops moving as Avery lifts her head. Dad. Avery pauses and pats my hand. Tell me everything will be okay. Tears bubble at the bottom of my swollen eye sockets and I can't promise anything. The shadow behind the curtain. I keep waiting for it to be a doctor. Someone who will share positive news with me. Negative scans. No need for an extended stay. No splenectomy required. Something. Anything. Avery turns blurry. Then she turns into two versions of herself with a deep voice. A deep voice pleading for assurance. I can't assure her or myself of anything. The shadow. It belongs to Beckett. My son. He creeps out from behind the curtain, lurking behind Avery. My vision returns in time to catch him brandishing a vial in one hand and making an injection motion into his neck with the other. Avery shakes her head. She wipes the sleeve of her U of H hoodie across her face. She chuckles. I suppose it's a good thing I'm not wearing makeup. Beckett steps closer to Avery. His eyes gaze down at her, then in my direction. A grin forms on the side of his mouth. He crosses his arms and taps a finger on his chin. I want so badly to press the alarm button on my bed, but I can't. It's only inches away from me, but I can't lift my arm. The button is right there. Right there. Why can't I just muster up the strength, the will, to beat whatever it is inside me weighing my body down and press the button? My oxygen mask gets hotter by the second. My breathing grows heavier even though I try to control it. 
The machines beep faster, hiss faster. The room swirls around me. My vision disappears again. Avery's voice turns muffled, muffled like a busted stereo speaker. The afterlife, my afterlife, drags her voice into a dark, endless tunnel of silence. Chapter 54 Beckett One time, Lex interviewed some sort of doctor. It was a fascinating conversation about medical errors and death. Did you know that if you have a surgery in July, you've got a 10% higher risk of dying than in any other month? And that about a quarter of a million people die every year from medical errors. So much for trusting the experts. None of this shocks me, though. We are all perfectly imperfect people walking this tiny spinning pebble in an infinite universe surrounded by other pebbles circling some big flaming circle we call the sun. Accidents happen. Take it from me, the guy whose sole existence can be attributed to an unplanned pregnancy. But I digress. The flawlessly flawed nurses and doctors, these bastions of health and science and the improvement of the human condition, they're just like you and me. Easily distracted. Glued to their phones, computers, and tablets. Their books and magazines. Oh yeah, it's true. Yeah. If they weren't, I would never have managed to sneak into a supply closet. One with supplies like gloves, masks, and scrubs. And drugs. Like fentanyl. These medical miracle workers, consumed by their plans for New Year's Eve, couldn't help being so excited about their first night off in three weeks... They didn't see me slipping a vial and syringe into my hoodie. They're humans, after all. Not superheroes. But I'm the villain, right? Wrong. Sure, sure, sure. It's easy to judge somebody staring at the daddy beat mercilessly in front of his family. I give you that. But villain? That's a bit of a stretch. How do you know I didn't take the fentanyl because next door to my dad, there's a gunshot victim with a teardrop tattoo on his face, which means his proclivities lean toward murder, and I was simply doing my part to keep Houston safe by giving him a lethal dose? Okay, that's a bit of a stretch too, I guess. One day, I was listening to Lex's podcast. He spoke with an author whose name I can't remember at the moment because I'm consumed with the fact that my mom is dead because of Lex. But this author, he talked about his fellow authors who kill off characters and how it's a lazy way to end a story. That, and the reader has to wake up the next day and you don't want to fuck up their mood for the next few days, possibly weeks, because you killed a character they got attached to. If there's anything I've learned from Lex, it's that humans are nothing more than animals with collections of stories we tell ourselves. You know, the decisions we make and actions we take. And if that's the case, then I wouldn't dare think about ending Lex's story and mine, with his death. Besides, death is too good for him. Too final. It gives him an easy way out. Only the purgatory of life after his shitty decisions will suffice. But that doesn't mean I can't have a little fun at his expense. And if you're wondering how I ended up here in the first place, let me get you caught up. Before the cops arrived that night, you know, the night my mom and Ellis died, I swore I'd murder Lex if he pressed charges. Finish him off for what he caused. Help the Grim Reaper with his handiwork. I'm not above getting blood on my hands, after all. Avery chimed in, saying she couldn't fathom losing both of her parents in one night during the holiday season. So she made a pact with me on Lex's behalf. I joined the family. Help with Lex's recovery, because I'm the one who did the damage. 
and see where life takes us. That, and she said she'd help me figure out who the other guy was, the guy I thought was my dad. I accepted Avery's terms. They beat the alternative. You know, prison and unanswered questions about my past. I'm normally pretty good at reading facial expressions, but the mask over Lex's face makes it hard. He's panting into the oxygen mask, and if this were a few weeks ago, I'd wish he was breathing in mustard gas. Not now, though. Avery weeps, and I wish she wouldn't weep because I can't console her. Not since finding out she's my sister and now anything having to do with touching or looking at her has given me a complex. The machines. They won't shut up. Fast beeps, loud beeps, long beeps, green lights and red lights and hissing gadgets. They keep Lex alive, which I suppose is better than dead. His left arm twitches in the direction of the pager next to him. Oh, you'll be fine. I say. Avery turns around. She adjusts her posture, as if she doesn't want me to know she's been crying over her dad's, our dad's, broken body. About time you came back, she grumbles. Lex grunts. His body shakes and fidgets under his hospital sheets. Such a drama queen. Like I'm really going to kill him in front of his daughter, in a hospital filled with hundreds, thousands of people? What kind of psycho does he think I am? I put my hands in my pockets and take a couple of steps closer and I still can't believe this is my dad and my mom is dead because of my dad and this isn't fair but the universe doesn't give a shit about fairness. I squeeze the vial and think about the fentanyl inside it, aka my insurance policy if Lex and or Avery decide to go full Benedict Arnold. You can never be too safe these days. Avery pulls a tissue from her pocket and blows into it with the sound of a scrambled TV signal. Gross, but not nearly as gross as going on a date and fantasizing about her before realizing she's my sister and the thought triggers my gag reflex. I swallow the hot liquid bile and clear my throat. It burns and maybe it would have been easier to let it out all over Lex. Dad. I hate that he's my dad and I still can't believe I went on a date with my sister because of him. Avery cracks a grin and I grin back. I tell Dad to get well soon and let the medicine do its work. That we'll be ready for him when he wakes up. You better wake up soon, commands Avery. I turn to my sister and give her a nod. Don't worry, he will. Dad's eyes close and the machine's noises settle down to the tempo of an R&B track. His breathing slows down. Slow and steady. Steady and calm. Calmer than the night as Christmas skeletons tumbled out of the closet.